Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. All right, this is episode two of my conversation with Nate McConkie about healthcare. And before we get into it, just want to be clear, it would be a wise thing to listen to our first conversation because uh, so much of what we reference back to in this particular episode is some of what we kind of built on in that episode. And so make sure you listen to that before you listen to this. And uh, if you have any questions along the way, write them down or um, so, so that you can send them to me because I would love to have them. So you can send them to Instagram at Pastor Justin Douglas. You can just direct message me or uh, you can leave a comment on one of the posts that I've made uh, for this episode. Maybe I, I made like a, a small little video clip of this episode. You can make a comment there with a question. You, If you prefer it to be private, you can direct message me. You can find me on Facebook. You can go to PastorJustinDouglas.com and leave a comment on the uh, podcast that's posted there. Uh, there's all kinds of ways to interact, but ultimately we're hoping we can gather somewhere from 10 to 20 questions uh, from what Nate said throughout these episodes uh, that might have sparked another question that you had that maybe I didn't have, or or maybe you just have um, a a question based off something that that he said or or something that he thinks or or whatever. Ultimately, we think it's a great opportunity to include you in this conversation. So hopefully we'll do a third episode on healthcare that will be just your questions. We really want this to be interactive. So um, so be mindful throughout this of any questions that pop in your head to write them down and then send them to me. All right, here it is. All right, I am back with Nate McConkie. We are on episode two of healthcare and uh, I'm going to let Nate um, give you a maybe summary if you missed the first one or maybe you listened to the first one but you want to uh, just be reminded of what we covered in that particular episode. So Nate, give them a recap of, I guess mainly, would you say mainly the thing we did was we covered like the healthcare quagmire and how we got here? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. So the, the quagmire to which we're referring is the fact that the United States spends more on healthcare than pretty much any other developed nation by a long shot, uh, but we don't have the highest quality or the highest outcomes to show. Uh, additionally, we're somewhat unique among developed nations in that we don't have universal health care coverage for all of its citizens. And there are a number of reasons for that, um, some that are distinct to our specific country in particular that we talked about. But we, we took a number of the issues involving cost in particular and put them into three buckets. So the first of which is that we have a tragic preponderance of preventable disease in the United States. Um, driven predominantly by lifestyle modifiable risk factors. So that includes things like the metabolic syndrome, a consequence of obesity that raises the risk factors of hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, etc. And of course, we spent some time talking about smoking in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, The second bucket is that we tend to invest considerable amounts of money with relatively few returns uh, for certain conditions in certain stages of life. And so this is a country where people would spend millions of dollars on a medication that may extend their life by a month, for example. Mm -hmm. Or we invest considerable amounts of money in conditions that can't necessarily be treated uh, to any reasonable degree. It's just that, you know, people want that 100 percent, so to speak. 
Um, and then the third general category is that we have accepted a very high cost for diminishing levels of quality as well. We insist on having the absolute best drugs, the most refined, highly trained specialists, the safest procedures, and the most regulatory oversight in some cases, which has certainly been one thing that makes healthcare in the United States uniquely beneficial, but not perhaps to the degree of cost that it's incurring for us. Mm. And ultimately, there is the question of at what point do we cross the line of having more negative outcome from a lack of access to care that outweighs the benefits of having some of these more refined drugs, procedures, technologies, etc. Um, and that's a question that no one really has a good answer for, and it probably varies from person to person. But uh, trying to dissect out which of these three buckets, I guess, is the most amenable to intervention if we're looking for a way to refine or improve the healthcare system is something that hopefully we'll be able to touch on a bit today. Yeah, yeah. So now we talk about the way out of this, which I think is unique and interesting because what I think is unique and interesting about the country we live in, the United States of America, we are talking specifically as Americans. So if you're listening to this and you're from somewhere else, this will give you a glimpse into our particular, you know, situation with healthcare. Like it's where we're, I just want to make it clear, like if you're coming from another context, this may not be for you or it may be for you because maybe you just don't understand why this is a problem <laughs> for Americans when maybe your, your country might have it figured out in some ways. Um, but I, I say that to say, I also think it's uniquely American in some ways that we get very connected almost in, um, uh, a constitutional way of like this is the way we do it mm -hmm. this it, our identity tends to be connected to policy a little more so maybe we're a little less flexible in some ways and maybe i'm reading that wrong because i do think we also are adaptable in other in other things but i do sense when we find ourselves polarized on particular subjects we tend to struggle to adapt to what's needed in a variety of political um, realities and i think the way i've seen healthcare discussed talked about over the last even 10 years people are very passionate on both sides about this right yes like, like and they're very uh they're very you know um polarized i guess you could say like to to where like they've probably had experiences or have particular beliefs or have particular ways of seeing it um that lead them to say this is the way it's got to be like there's, right. there's no other way and yeah. and that that's hard to discuss change. So before we get started, I just want to make this clear. N neither Nate or I are are here to be like this political candidate has all the answers or this political party has <laughs> all the wish. answers. Yeah. That's that's not like the 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 premise of this. The goal of this is to simply say like what effective legislative change or, or change in general would would potentially relieve some of these realities we found ourselves in and it's mm -hmm. it's not a silver bullet it's not like you're going to tell me there's one change if we make this one simple change everything will change i would guess right you right. don't have a silver bullet option there's no. probably a few things we need to talk Pray about not. here yeah um and so it might just be that we make that change and things get a little better and that change and things get a little better but ultimately this is going to be um a long road to some extent of like needing to adjust and then those adjustments are probably going to need to be adjusted down the road too, as we figure out data comes back. So one of the things I think it's interesting context wise, 
I, uh, I, I watched a video from the Minnesota government that said in 1997, the Minnesota government was spending $15 billion on healthcare and family premiums were at um, an average of 5K per year. And then 20 years later, um, 18K per year was the family premium. So more than tripled and the government budget more than tripled and they're spending $47 billion a year. So that cost in both those categories tripled over 20 years, which is uh, incredibly unsustainable, not only for a government's budget, I mean, a government spending that much on healthcare, um, but also for families whose premiums have over 20 years tripled. I don't know that um, those families have uh, tripled their salaries. Right. <laughs> I would doubt it. I don't even know that they've got over that period of time a 20% raise. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah. Um, so now those premiums have gone up. Um, and, and even as those premiums go up, it's very likely that even the quality of care might have dropped down or that the access to prescriptions or cost for copays for going to the emergency room have gone up, things like that. Does that make sense? It's not It's not indicative of them getting better care is it's what I guess I'm trying to grand, say. Yes. Um, so it's not like they've chosen to spend more because they have better access to care. This is right. a, a line that just keeps kind of going up. And so there's a lot of answers to this for... Um, um, from from various legislators who have ideas for uh, the government side of things and for the from the family side of things for premiums and so um, one of the questions I got when I posted on Instagram which it might be the best place to kind of start because I'm assuming this question is going to make you have to kind of break down things into buckets again and into yeah. like conversational topics mm -hmm. um, and then we can just kind of take it and go like we do um, the question I got was thoughts on single payer and how it would impact quality of care. And I'll, I'll add to that, I guess, how it would impact like um, even the government budgets and household budgets, potentially um, a single payer, what, what that looks like. Maybe explain even what a single payer is mm -hmm. for people who maybe don't know. Yeah, and I, I do want to clarify that it may not mean what most people think it means. Okay. Uh, last session, we talked about the difference between an insurer, a financer, and a payer. So, for example, if you're employed by, you know, Sue's Cookie Shop or something, sure. and she Sounds happens... Like a great place to be employed, yeah, yeah, by the way. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, and she happens to provide excellent health insurance through a partnership with Name Your Favorite Insurance Company. Okay. You know, Get Healthy Insurance Co. Sure. Okay. So, Sue <laughs> gives money to Get Healthy Insurance Co., who puts it into a bucket from everyone else who's paying into that system. And it may be many, many other bakeries or non-bakery-related mm -hmm. yeah, industries. Yeah. And from it, they can essentially cushion the blow of any particular person who happens to have a very expensive illness. Mm -hmm. That way, no one is directly impoverished because of bad luck. That's the whole idea behind insurances. But then Get Healthy Co. might actually contract with a separate agency who actually bargains and negotiates with a local hospital. Mm -hmm. And they'll come and say, hey, we happen to insure, you know, 12,000 people in central Pennsylvania. So if you make a good deal with us, we can send a lot of business your way. Mm -hmm. And because they do that, they can negotiate for lower prices. But then ultimately that means they're the ones who decide how much is fair and actually spend the money gathered by this particular insurance company from Sue, the cookie owner. Mm -hmm. And based on that, there are multiple people at play who have some role in deciding how much your healthcare services co actually cost. Uh, so single payer, just means that the person who's actually either financing, paying, or both is a single entity. So the government might say, okay, we're going to provide for everyone to have insurance based on money that we collect through taxes. And so everyone simply receives that as a benefit of being a citizen of the country. 
that does not mean everyone has the same insurance. Mm -hmm. It could just mean the government says we will provide this much worth of coverage through whatever specific insurance company you're contracting with, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is similar to what happens with Medicare and Medicaid. It's not like if you're under one of those services, you come in and hand a card that says Medicare and then that's that. Um, There are specific products, if you will, that Medicare covers that are actually offered by private entities. Mm -hmm. So that's one form of a single payer. What most people often mean when they say single payer could also mean a single insurance company. So if, for example, you're under something like a a national health service, like in the UK, um, there may only be one specific entity who insures, provides, and covers your care. And that would likely, in the case of what those legislators are arguing for, would not be a privatized business. It would be a government entity. Correct. Not to say that it has to be with a single-payer system, but very frequently, for convenience, that's what ends up happening. And the thing that makes a single-payer system so powerful and so dangerous is that if there's only one game in town, then they can negotiate whatever they want. So if you're in a country that has a single-payer health system and you're developing a drug, for example, if that particular entity, whether it's the government or some private entity that's been tasked with that responsibility, if they say, we don't like that price, we're not going to purchase your product, they have no competition. Maybe someone could pay out of pocket if they're especially wealthy, but that's not the most sustainable business model when everyone else is operating through this particular agency. Um, Now, if you have an especially unique or powerful drug, that no one else is offering, you might say, well, tough luck, that's the price. Either pay it or your people just don't receive that particular service. Then it's possible mm. that the single payer may relent in that case. But it's it's unusual that such, a, such an impactful discovery is limited, especially when you consider that things like patent laws are written by the government, who also happens to be the payer. Mm. So it's really hard to suppress competition when most of the legal instruments you do so are written by one of the people you're trying to bargain with. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Interesting. Yeah. So it's good because it can drive down the cost of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Because the more the more people you have in that particular insurance bucket, right? More people paying into that is more purchasing power. Exactly. Correct. Like it's going to drive down that cost because you're going to be able to say, "I know how many people are in your particular market, and I can send them your way mm-hmm. if we can get the right price." Then you'll be our preferred the doctors at your hospital will be the preferred ones within our network. Correct? Right. Is that what it, is that how it works? Yes, yes. Or or your drug will be the preferred drug that we cover for this condition. Got you. Okay. Your pacemaker will be the preferred pacemaker, your hip replacement will be the preferred hip replacement. And okay. and that's a huge boon to those particular services, whatever they're providing, whether it's yeah. a drug or technology or a service. Um, and it gives them a lot of stability and predictability to know that they don't really have to compete once they've landed that deal. Yeah. Um, now, someone else could always come along and develop something better, but it's not like it will you know, ebb and flow with the changing of the market as can happen with private insurances. Sure. Okay. Okay. So how would that impact the quality of care? And obviously that's kind of a loaded question because it probably depends on the way in which it's implemented. Right. Because you have a variety of single payer options. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe explain two or three potential single payer options you think would be actually possible in the United States? In, well, insofar as ways of setting up a system. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I mean, I think we talked. Medicare and Medicaid are already in some ways a single payer system. Kind of. Yeah. And it's. Even if Medicare and Medicaid aren't the only game in town, it is an extremely large and powerful player in this game. 
And for that reason, Medicare and Medicaid do enjoy some of the benefits that you might expect from a single-payer entity. Um, just to give you an example of how it works, uh, if a private insurance company were to go to a hospital or a healthcare provider and say, we're here to negotiate prices, the hospital could do the same thing that every retailer does and say, well, normally the cost is $20,000, but for you, just for you, we'll cut you a deal and make it 10000 Okay. They could do that knowing their plan was from the start to charge 10000 Yeah. Just like when they say, oh, you know, this week only, this particular car is, you know, sure. it's President's Day. We have a sale for that and a sale <laughs> for this. You know, people, people will charge what they want to charge mm -hmm. and they'll dress it up however they want. Mm -hmm. um, many insurance companies play that game with hospitals to some degree. Medicare and Medicaid do something a little bit different. They come along and say, look, we know how much it costs to cover this condition. We will pay you that much. So if you don't want to do that, then we're going to direct all of the people under our particular plans to a different hospital. And that's a lot of people. And that's a lot of people. And so now, instead of negotiating down from the quote listed price, many insurance companies are picking up on this and saying, hey, we heard that you're cutting a deal for Medicare and Medicaid. How about we'll pay you a little extra? They negotiate up from Medicare as opposed to negotiating down from list prices. Mm. So already... You know, CMS, which I'll use hitherforth referring to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid. That's kind of the shorthand for that. Um, CMS already has some of the power that you would expect from a single payer entity. And what a lot of people don't realize is many federal laws that govern healthcare only operate by way of CMS. Um, and that, that's kind of an interesting thought for people. Most people don't realize that. Um, in the U.S., with our system of federalism, the federal government delegates most power on day-to-day -day basis to the states. Mm -hmm. So the federal government has a very strictly delineated list of powers and authorities, and managing health care is not one of them. Yeah. So why do we have federal laws like something as basic as HIPAA? Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of those laws operate via Medicare and Medicaid by something like this. They say one of the rules of Medicare and Medicaid is that you have to abide by these specific laws and principles. And if you don't, well, I guess we really don't have power to influence that. But because the federal government has dominion over interstate commerce, they can say because we're offering a product that crosses state lines, at least to some degree, then we can, we can influence hospitals based on their ability to participate in that program. Um, what's interesting is that isn't just limited to patients covered by Medicare and Medicaid. So if the, if the government says, you know, here's a new principle, some quality standard that hospitals have to adhere to, they could say as a, as a contingency of participating in Medicare and Medicaid, you have to apply that standard to all patients who come in your hospital. So HIPAA is one example. HIPAA is a federal law that governs hospitals, and it does so by way of participation in Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, likewise, we have what are called stark and anti-kickback laws, which means I can't refer a patient to another provider that I have a deal with where they send me money back in exchange for referrals. Ooh, okay. um, so what's interesting is if you're looking at services that are not covered by Medicare and Medicaid, um, or if you're, if you're uh, more specifically, if you're a provider who has no reason to interact with Medicare and Medicaid, um, like, for example, if you do, uh, I'm trying to think of an example. I'm not sure if cosmetic surgery would necessarily fall into this description, but something that Medicare doesn't necessarily pay for, you're not technically bound by those laws. You could go to someone who collects money out of pocket and doesn't take Medicare and doesn't deal in any services covered by Medicare, and you could refer to your partner down the road and have him pay you money back, um, mm. which is 
I mean, that's illegal for anyone to do in a hospital system that treats Medicare and Medicaid patients. And that protection extends not just to those patients, but to everyone who uses a hospital, as long as that hospital has any dealings with Medicare or Medicaid at all. Okay. Um, so in the U.S., one of the consequences of having this not single payer, but very large player is that it has been used as a vehicle for the federal government to legislate health care, which it doesn't explicitly have the power to do outside of that. Mm. And again, that comes as a surprise to people who don't fully grasp how federalism works in our country. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So a lot there really quick. We should probably do this just for those people who don't know the difference between Medicare and Medicaid. Oh, yeah. Okay, we should probably cover that really quick. So go for that. So both Medicare and Medicaid came into existence in 1966 under President Johnson. Mm -hmm. And they're designed to provide health care coverage for people who otherwise wouldn't necessarily be able to participate in the public markets. Um, While they're often used kind of interchangeably, they do cover different things and there are different qualifications that you need to get into them. But we're going to oversimplify it a bit and say Medicare is for typically elderly patients over 65 Uh, most typically retirees who otherwise wouldn't have a source of income to purchase private insurance. Mm -hmm. And Medicaid is for people who are either indigent, uh, they're either disabled or they are in poverty or in some way not able to work for other reasons or not able to work to the degree they would need to provide health insurance for themselves and their family. Um, And the specific menu of services that they cover does differ a little bit in ways that are a little nuanced and probably beyond the scope of this discussion, but just to emphasize that they're not completely interchangeable. So one of the interesting things about Medicaid is that it can really vary by state, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So like I was, I heard a story about someone who fell into the bracket of, of Medicaid in Massachusetts and was able to get what ultimately for them was like life-saving treatment. Mm-hmm. But had they been in Alabama, for example, mm-hmm. um, they would not have met the threshold. And the threshold in Alabama was like, in my opinion, crazy, unreasonable. I want to say it was like annual income of like $5,000 or something. Yeah. I, don't quote me on that, but it was something really, really, really low um, that I'm like, even if that was your annual income, like yeah. you could be making 20000 more than that and still not be able to get health care. Does that make sense? Exactly, so like, yeah. So <clears throat> this individual was talking about how your health and your ability to even survive, because this was a life-threatening illness that this individual had, um, can be so determined by the state you're even living in um, mm-hmm. in those situations. Is that pretty true from your experience? Like, did, Like... I'm just curious from your experience how much of that you see. Obviously, you're in the state of Pennsylvania, so you know the Pennsylvania standards, I would assume, right. are, have, are connected to that. I've also um, done work in Ohio and Indiana. Yeah, and so, you, so you've done work in different, in different yeah. states. Have you noticed a difference in that? Um, well, it's hard to tell because the people who don't have the ability to see a doctor didn't really see me very often. There you go, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I if someone was uninsured and died in the streets and never got to my door, I'd have no idea. Yeah, you know, yeah. Now, obviously, in the emergency department, when someone comes in in dire straits, then that's that's one of the few ways that people can find themselves under the care of a healthcare provider without insurance. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in those situations, the last thing on my mind is, gee, I wonder what insurance they have. Um, and yeah. fortunately, we have you know, highly specialized professionals in the hospital who work with insurance companies on a daily basis, Mm -hmm. who know what a patient's insurance will and won't cover and how to get them the resources they need if they don't. 
How um, many how many of those do you think you have in a typical hospital? People that are tasked with that particular priority of of determining and deciphering how an individual is going to be able to pay for this procedure or this medication or well the people needed. who work most closely with us would include things like social workers and you know care uh, care coordinators there's a few different terms that people have in different hospitals mm-hmm. um, typically an inpatient service which is uh, a team of physicians and their associates who cover, you know, depending on the service, between 10 and 30 patients or so. Uh, each of those units of the hospital, if you will, is usually assigned one. Okay. Now, that one may also be covering some other services as well. Sure. So it's not like every individual team gets their own. Um, but we all have at least one point person that we would interact with on probably a daily basis. Okay. So I don't think we finished the question, thoughts on a single pair right. and how it would impact health, the quality of care. But I do want to ask this. And we'll get we'll get back to that question, or we'll just keep weaving that question in because I feel like it's going to have a lot of um, uh, there's a lot to be said on that question. Yes. I feel like, um, but one of the, the questions I have on the thoughts of a single payer, and let's say it was like a nationalized single payer healthcare, like really, uh, you know, very very much like everyone had access to it. It was um, the negotiating power, all of that, you know came into play and that's going to be a challenge for insurance companies, isn't it? I mean that, and what I mean by, here's what I mean by, and it depends again how they do it. Right. But I feel like some of what I hear about insurance companies is they have a lot of bloated positions. Um, And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if they have a lot of people, you know, but I would guess that you're going to have thousands, if not maybe even hundreds of thousands of jobs that, are either in the insurance industry or maybe even in the hospital industry Mm -hmm. that aren't going to be necessary anymore or that are going to really have to be adjusted for a new system. Do you think that's a problem in this whole Um, potential transition? I I do and I don't. So I I, I know that we always talk about the importance of creating jobs with Mm -hmm. any legislation or protecting jobs, but I don't think anyone has a right to a job that prolongs an existing problem. I believe that if someone's job is to advertise cigarettes to children, they probably should be out of work. And (laughs) it does not matter how big their family is and how many mouths they have to feed. There's enough problems that need solved that they can make money solving that they shouldn't make a profession out of prolonging a problem. And while it it, it sounds kind of cold to say that, I do think that we will not be able to make progress unless we make changes and changes are disruptive. Yeah. I don't think that anyone has such a highly specialized skill set within an insurance company, for example, that they would be just utterly destitute if that company went under. And if so, they ought to consider not keeping all their eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, Now, that being said, there are some other ways that we could mitigate those effects. And obviously, the same duties that an insurance company would fulfill in terms of collecting and dispersing funds, negotiating with providers, all of those things would still need to be done on a larger scale than the current largest payer would be doing. Mm. Um, It wouldn't necessarily be impossible for them to move into the new system in a similar role. Um, Another thing that's worth noting is one of the tenets of the Affordable Care Act was that insurance companies were mandated to spend 85% of the money they receive on actual delivery of healthcare services. Mm. Um, people may not know that that was actually part of that law. Yeah. So an insurance company can't collect money and then build new golden swimming pools for their CEOs, at least not more than 15% of the money they get back. Sure. 
Um, now, you can be a little sneaky in terms of how you say that your money is providing for the care of patients. It yeah. could be paying the salary of someone whose job is to argue with doctors on the phone about what the patient really needs. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly what games are played in that regard, but already we're trying to take efforts to limit how much money stays with the insurance company instead of being sent back to the individuals that they're covering. Mm -hmm. uh, now, obviously, anyone who puts in honest work should experience some benefit from it. I think there ought to be some incentive for insurance companies to stay open to you know, recruit talented professionals to that field. I'm not disparaging it. Yeah. But I do think that there is a limit on how much you get back from giving people these exorbitant salaries. Yeah. So that's my two cents. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. So it will create some disruption, but maybe some disruption is necessary. Mm -hmm. I think in all change, disruption is going to happen. Yeah. That's just a reality with any change. It's disruption. Um, and like you said, we can mitigate maybe some of that mm -hmm. by potentially those people who might lose their job with the insurance company having access or being some of the first in line to have access to some of these new jobs that are going to be created by mm. a new system or um, or maybe is there a single payer option that actually includes some of the insurance companies that currently exist? Oh yeah, like, absolutely. Like in it, like that in essence, like works with the primary insurance companies that are, that are, I guess, bigger insurance companies and figures a way to, use them within the model and, and that's what medicare and medicaid do okay again medicare and medicaid is not a specific insurance company that everyone just has medicare and medicaid is an agency that contracts with insurance products we would say that are developed by you know mainstream insurance companies mm -hmm. so okay. yeah like in in central pennsylvania we've got highmark blue cross blue shield we've got upmc we have geisinger we have all these different entities uh, most of which offer a specific product for Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries. Hmm. And um, they, they go by a number of different names that I always have to refer to my little cheat sheet for so that I can tell which is which. Sure. Um, but that is one way in which these private companies are directly participating in the system. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to our question, thoughts on single payer and how it would impact quality of care. Let's focus for a minute on quality of care. Mm -hmm. Do you? One of the things I've heard is like, if we go to a Canadian system, you'll be waiting four weeks to get your leg in a cast if you break your leg or, you know, you'll be the, the hospital lines for the surgery that you need will take forever. You won't be able to get the treatment you need. As I've talked to Canadian friends of mine, um, that hasn't been their experience with the Canadian system, mm -hmm. but I want to be clear. Those are individuals who have particular experiences. Maybe that is a problem in certain parts of Canada. Does that right. make sense? Right. Um, and whenever you're going to a new system, there can be the problem, the hiccups that exist in onboarding something new. Do you think there will be quality of care issues and issues where people are getting backlogged slash, um, you know, just put in line and it's taken longer? I mean, there's a certain element of our healthcare now that I would assume, like if you want, if you want something that's not absolutely an emergency, which I would assume getting your leg in a cast counts as like a pretty urgent reality. Um, but like if you need a surgery that's not, let's say a knee replacement, mm -hmm. there might be a line that you got to get in for that because that takes time to, to, yes. to get everybody who needs a knee replacement in central Pennsylvania, what they need. You know what I'm trying to yes. say? Like, like, so like, but so I'm just curious with that question, like, where do you think the quality of care will, it, how, how different do you anticipate it would be if that something like a single payer were to take place? Mm, well, before I do that, I, okay. I do want to make one point in terms of terminology. Okay. Good. Um, when we talk about 
healthcare and ways that it works and ways that it doesn't, we often talk about three elements, cost, quality, and access. Yes. And everything you describe right now is a matter of access, not what okay. we would call quality. Okay. So quality would be of the people who get, let's say, knee replacements. How many of them have good outcomes? How many have short hospital stays? How many don't get leg clots uh, in their blood vessels? How many of them are able to walk without pain afterwards? How many need repeat operations? All mm. of those are questions of quality. Okay. Um, so it's so let's answer it for both then. Let's answer, let's for, answer for quality yeah. and access. Okay. Because we already we've already kind of in some ways addressed cost. Well, maybe we really haven't. But my assumption would be we cost is going to go down. Like that, the goal of the the whole the whole point, right, is that the costs get driven down. Yes. There's a higher a higher negotiation for the product uh, or a larger right. pool negotiating for the product, therefore hopefully driving the cost down. Right, right. So, so that's the cost portion. So let's talk access and quality now and if the, either of those are going to be impacted in your mind for the negative or the better. Sure. So let's start with access because that's kind of the crux of the question we've been asking so far. Um, the way that a single-payer healthcare system, and I do want to emphasize again, single-payer in this case we're using for universal coverage, okay. which is not always a given with single-payer. Okay. That just happens to be how it is typically set up. But and maybe simply, we'll break those down a little bit yeah. in, in a minute because I do want to talk about that, but go ahead. Yeah. But, but most of the time, that's what people mean. They mean a single-payer that everyone has access to. Mm -hmm. So by, by virtue of that statement, more people are able to get into the healthcare system. More people whose knees are achy don't have to sit at home saying, well, you know, maybe someday I'll hit the lottery and get this looked at. Anyone can <laughs> say, I'm going to call a doctor and make an appointment. And yeah. if it's necessary, I'll have the surgery. Mm -hmm. So the way in which it decreases access is by increasing the number of people waiting in line. So you could say uh, that's a good thing because it means otherwise people were just suffering with their illnesses and not getting treated at all, which is the epitome of bad access. Yeah. But it does mean that for people who are already able to access because they're simply well off enough to pay for their own insurance or they happen to have good insurance through their employer or they are one of the populations covered by CMS, well, for them, now more people are waiting in their line. Um, those are the people who tend to be ticked off about it. Yeah. Okay. And with and it's 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 reasonable to say that once the line gets long enough, it becomes impractical to wait in it. I mean, there may be certain very common services, whether it's something like uh, orthopedics is a good example because it's something that affects a lot of people, but may not be immediately deadly. Yeah. Um. So that could be something. But it still can be a really nagging hindrance to your everyday life. Yeah. And in some cases, yeah. it can be deadly. Yeah. You okay. know, when an elderly patient breaks their hip, that predicts mortality within six months. Yeah. It's it's not something that is good to happen to people. And there tends to be a golden window in which you want to fix that hip and get them up and moving around as quickly as possible because the longer those populations stay in the hospital, the more likely they are to have very bad outcomes. Mm. So I don't want to trivialize it. I just want to say that it's not like clutching your heart and falling over dead. Yeah. Um, would anybody, do you think, lack emergency care due to this? Like, would there be a... I, I'm curious to, so so we've been talking in orthopedics or in knee replacement, that kind of hip replacement. Do you sense that emergency rooms would be equipped for the potential uptick in people having access? Or do you think well, it would actually be the inverse because people now have health care? So those people who were going to the emergency room because they didn't have health care mm -hmm. would actually no longer be occupying that space. Well, that's a question that history has answered for us. We talked about EMTALA last week. Yeah. Um, so EMTALA is the Emergency Medical Treatment Act of Labor Act, which says that if someone comes into the hospital with an emergency, we have to treat them, or we at least have to examine them to confirm that they're not having an emergency. And it does not matter that they're able to pay for it or not. So 
everyone in the U.S., whether they're rich or poor, documented or undocumented, they all have the right to walk into an emergency department and receive an evaluation and treatment of any emergency conditions, Mm -hmm. Um, which was a recent innovation. Again, that came around in 1986. And before that, there are stories of hospitals taking patients, putting them in cabs, and sending them to the hospital down the road so that they would be the ones to bite the cost of their treatment instead. That happened in this country in the early 1900s. Wow. Um, so after that act went into effect, there was a significant uptick in visits to emergency departments. In the following 10 years, you know, there was a 25% increase and about 400 emergency departments shut down or at least reorganized themselves to no longer qualify as emergency departments. Mm. Um, now, having said that, it's a little bit unique in that we mandate emergency care, but not primary care. A patient cannot walk into a family doctor's office and demand an appointment and not pay for it. So as you pointed out, many people use emergency departments for want of a primary care doctor. They may not be experiencing an emergency. They may just be out of their blood pressure meds and need someone to prescribe them. And And it will be a life or death situation. So you probably have to be like, okay, well, we might as well. Right, right. And and they would also, I don't know any of my colleagues who would be cold enough to turn someone away for something as simple as writing a prescription. Yeah. So, you know, just out of, you know, there's a lot of things we do, not because we're legally obligated, but because we took an oath yeah. to uphold the best interests of our patients. And turning someone away for something so simple would not be keeping that. But at the same time, it is not the most valuable use of an ER doctor's time not remotely. To, 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 to meet with somebody who exactly. needs blood pressure medicine. Exactly. And those instances might be mitigated through something like a single-payer universal healthcare. Because right. you'd have more people covered, mm-hmm. therefore... The behavioral pattern of how people use their healthcare mm-hmm. will shift potentially. Right. So it could be a relief to ERs in some ways. Yes, although all those patients go somewhere. Um, and right now, we are experiencing a primary care physician shortage. Okay. A lot of that has to do with how primary care doctors are paid. Um, in this country, we reimburse most generously for procedures. So I probably would make more money putting in a pacemaker, which could take an hour and a half than I would for taking care of, you know, two days worth of clinic patients. Mm, And a lot of that has to do with just how the system happens to be set up. And that might be a fixable problem, perhaps. But it's also true that, you know, putting in a pacemaker would take at least eight years of training after medical school compared to the three years of being just a primary care doctor. So, you know, we want to be fair in some ways, but there's a lot of incentive for people to hyper-specialize and leave primary medicine. Um, okay. And obviously, full disclosure, I was a primary care doctor before I went to fellowship for cardiology. So, yeah. you know, that that was me, you know. Yeah. Now, I did it because I love heart disease. Not you because did it I, for the money, man. You no, did it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean, that's a, that's a whole story. But, you know, it's the system does incentivize people to yes, do that sort of thing. I understand. So we have a shortage in that. And now one of the things I see kind of filling that gap, and I say this just because I know my mom's experience. My mom wanted mm-hmm. to be an RN and then became a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. And as a nurse practitioner, she's seeing her own kind of patients. Now, I right. know that's different in each state, has different laws about what nurse practitioners can and can't do and the freedoms they have. But my mom's in Indiana and she pretty much has her own, her own, I guess, you know, um, patients that she sees regularly, that she treats regularly, mm-hmm. that she prescribes medication to regularly. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to see even how nurse practitioners can help in some ways. Yeah. Fill and that physician shortage assistants and, and nurse practitioners yeah. both 
yeah. perform similar duties in that regard. Yeah. And that especially the patients who have established diagnoses who need long-term chronic care, yep. it's a very convenient option for them to be able to see an NP or a PA just for you know their annual checkup or for managing an established diagnosis. And an established probably... Um regiment of prescriptions right. that need to be refilled or need to be checked in on and seeing how it's affecting. Right. So that's a health. huge benefit. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Okay. Um, so that's, that's one option, but you know, there are certain services that can't really be substituted for. Yeah. Um, and the question of, you know, how much of that would be, how much would be less necessary if people never reached that point in the first place. So to your earlier point, fewer people would go to the emergency department because they have primary care doctors, but I would also hope it's because they're having fewer emergencies in the first place. Because they're getting the care that hopefully is exactly. keeping them from having the emergency. Right, with good preventative care. Yes, preventative care. There yeah. might not be as much need for that. So the hope is that over time, as more people are covered, we can get a hold of these issues before they you know, develop into large expensive catastrophes. Yeah. I'll say this, the cynical me says that's going to take some time to see those numbers trend that way because you also have in some ways behavioral patterns that have been put in place for some populations. As yes. Well. And that and those was behavioral patterns of how they, do, how they use and access healthcare is going to take some time to relearn and it might take a generation in some regard. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, it's interesting. There was actually uh, a famous study called the Rand healthcare experiment okay. where they, to see what people would do in this scenario, they gave a certain number of families that were enrolled as subjects unlimited access to healthcare, essentially. Okay. And then there was a control group as well. And it was the experiment was a little more sophisticated than that, but they said what happens when people have unlimited access to healthcare? And famously in that study, the patients who had their healthcare covered just by nature of being enrollees in this experiment uh, had significantly more visits to their their physician for significantly milder pathologies, things that most people wouldn't think of going to a doctor for. Okay. Um, and that was one thing that was held up as evidence that single payer universal healthcare might not be as much of an option because it would increase utilization of healthcare services. Mm-hmm. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is being in that study did not grant you those privileges for life. It was for a set period. Yeah. So people were probably rushing to get everything they the could look at. The mindset is get as much looked at as I can right now. Before those benefits yeah. expired. I'd also be interested in the background of those particular individuals and yes. how they've interacted Who signs with up for, for a study? whole life. If someone knocked on my door and said, hey, come join our research project and we'll give you health care, I would say, well, I don't need that right now. I'm yeah. perfectly well off as is. Yeah. And so yeah. you're going to have a little bit of a selection bias, I would assume. It'd be interesting to see the also like the, yeah, the... The financial demographics of that, mm-hmm. of that, like the background average mean income, for example, yeah. of the testes. Right. Yeah, that, but that's, that's an interesting study nonetheless. Yeah. 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 But as a result of that, we know that there are certain ways that you can incentivize or disincentivize people to use or forego healthcare services. So most people are familiar with the idea of a copay. Mm-hmm. So even if you have healthcare, uh, good insurance, if you go to your doctor for a problem of some sort or you go to the emergency department you have to pay a small sum out of pocket before your benefits kick in and usually it's something like twenty dollars and the idea is it's small enough that it's not a major obstacle if you really need to see a doctor but it's high enough that you would think twice before going in for every little thing and for emergency departments those copays can be one or two hundred dollars yeah so um, we know that there are ways of making subtle adjustments so that people realize that, you know, in exchange for the service I'm receiving, I'm consuming some degree of resources and I want to save those for the people who need it the most. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with the deductible. And there's a, there's a lot more ways of going into it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. And, and the other thing is 
even independent of the financial incentives, people have significant psychological either barriers or facilitating factors for going to a doctor. And one of the reasons why so many patients don't want to see a doctor is because we might find something. You know, no one wants to get a colonoscopy because, oh, Grandpa Joe had a colonoscopy and they found out he had cancer and then he got chemo and he was never the same. Mm. Uh, and that may be true. But the reason we look for some conditions and not others is because we're trying to find the ones that we can intervene on early. Yeah. Which is why even though something like ovarian cancer is a particularly nasty and deadly cancer, we don't screen for it because we don't have a way of curing it. Mm. Meanwhile, if you have something like uh, colon cancer or breast cancer, um, we often have some options where if it's caught soon enough, we can intervene on it to a meaningful degree. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people still have that psychological barrier of I was healthy until I went to the doctor. And I think a lot of people might also have the psychological barrier of like, I don't like the doctor. Yeah. And, and the same is like, I always hear this primarily with the dentist. Oh, it's yeah. Like, I don't like going to the dentist. Right. Well, right. it's like, but you're going to have to go to the dentist if you don't go to the dentist exactly. regularly. Like you're going to have to go for things that exactly. you really won't and like. Have... And, and that becomes the case, I would assume, with healthcare too. So. Yeah. 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 Um, so it's, it, and some people just for a number of reasons that I practically did my master's thesis on, some people are markedly distrustful of physicians, independent mm. of that. And you did your master's thesis on the distrust of physicians. Well, I, part of it. So uh, a lot of it was focused on health psychology and decision making models, okay. and I looked in particular in a few things called the TRA, the TBP, theory of reasoned action, theory of planned behavior, integrated behavioral model, um, different ways of looking at how people make decisions about their own health. Okay. Um, my, my big capstone project was on diabetes specifically. But in general, people will pursue a healthcare behavior of some sort, whether it's taking some preventative action like getting their flu shot or undergoing screening like getting, you know, a low-dose chest CT for lung cancer. They'll do it if they believe there is a threat that they happen to be vulnerable to, if the benefits of catching it exceed the risks of them undergoing it, and if it enriches their personal agency. And there's a few other unique elements that play into it as well. But a lot of people, for any number of those reasons, will not pursue a healthcare behavior because in some other way, it either um, it, it either strengthens their sense of self, like in the case of anti-vaxxers, who yeah. love the idea that they've outsmarted the doctors, or it absolves them of having to deal with the consequences, like the smoker who says, well, my grandpa smoked until he was 100 and he was just fine, which is a form of denial. Yeah. Or perhaps it's the individual who thinks that there's nothing I can do about it, even if I found it, so I'm just going to give up, mm. like the person whose Uncle Joe died of cancer, and so they don't want to screen for it because they may underestimate their chance of succeeding in treatment if they catch it early. So for all of those reasons, different people are incentivized to avoid what would otherwise be in their best interest. Mm, okay. So even if they have, even if people have access, which would obviously be the goal of a single payer universal model, some people still may not use it. Right. Even it, if they've been given access to something they've never had before, mm -hmm. not only will it be maybe a new thing that they have to figure out, a new landscape they have to navigate, which might be intimidating in itself. There may be other factors, psychological factors, behavioral mm -hmm. factors that play into that. And a lot of those are uniquely American as well. Yeah. So the idea, for example, that based on American notions of independence and self-agency, people don't like putting their health in the hands of another person. Mm. They don't like the idea that, you know, this individual knows more about me or God forbid my child 
that I have to trust them with my or their well-being. Mm. They like the idea that, you know, I am sufficiently empowered that I can go on Google or WebMD and <laughs> I can give myself just as good care as a professional or I can make my own healthcare decisions without having to consult with anyone. And and, and that is the foundation of things like the anti-vaccine movement. Yeah, yeah. Or, or all of these pardon me, all these ridiculous things that people try and promote as a magical cure-all that yeah. are often sold either in you know, multi-level marketing schemes or yeah. with just a specific individual who decides to sell something on their own website with a blog. Yeah. I mean, it's everyone and their mother seems to know someone who can give them some magical cure-all for whatever ailment they bring yeah. up. Anyone who mentions they have a chronic disease on Facebook is going to get a dozen opinions from people who have no business giving medical advice yeah and often people have something to sell you for it as well and we talked about this last time a little bit in the supplements reality of mm -hmm. like how supplements can can guarantee something that's really not gonna happen or, or that's not proven and that's not regulated right we talked about regulation it's not regulated yes you know what i mean interesting but interesting. but people like the idea that they are just as good as the experts. Yes. Do you get a lot of people that come in and be like, well, WebMD told me or this yes. told me? Because I, I talk to a lot of med students who are like, the amount of people I heard today telling me like, it's like, it's like, yes, please. I give you advice and then tell me all the reasons WebMD tells you not to. I didn't <laughs> I mean, go to med, I, med school or anything. Like the memes that they'll post sometimes are I, great. I'll say I like when patients take ownership of their condition yes i like when they educate themselves i like when they bring some understanding of their disease process to the table i like when they want to know what's going on so that they can do their part to take care of it mm -hmm. what is frustrating is when they say i don't believe you on the basis of this is a conspiracy or you're a paid chill or you don't actually have my best interest at heart that's a very different character of conversation yeah so i will never take offense to sitting down with a patient for an hour on end going over what they found on webmd and why it does or doesn't apply to them um if they come in and say like i don't want to take this drug because i think that you know pfizer pharmaceutical has you on payroll to prescribe that medication that's a very different sort of interaction <laughs> um, which mercifully is uncommon and yeah, I, I yeah. hopefully the more my patients get to know me, the less that happens. I, I can't recall the last time yeah. I've had a conversation like that, although I've, I've witnessed yeah. it. You have um, a pediatrics background too, right? Uh, that's regard. one of them. Like, yes. Yeah. So, so, so do you, have you ever had anybody that's been like, I don't want to vaccinate all the time, all the time, all the time. That's probably a more popular thing than WebMD even, right? Well, yeah, or it's, it's not, at least. it is not common that someone flat out refuses vaccination, but we have, so the world health organization describes it as quote vaccine hesitancy, sure. which for the record, it named as one of the leading, leading threats to public health in wow. the world, in the world, actually, okay. not just the U S was vaccine hesitancy. And it's, the majority of parents who come in and express concerns aren't like, you know, I refuse to vaccinate because I think this is all an elaborate conspiracy. It's I've heard some people say some things and I'm concerned. Yeah. And it's it is an appropriate response when someone offers you a treatment to say, how is this going to affect me? Are there any risks I should know about? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of informed consent is making someone aware of the risks and benefits. And so I've often had those conversations. I brought up the data. And 99% of the time, the response I get is, oh, that makes me feel so much better. Yeah. And, and specifically on vaccination, we have studied vaccines more than pretty much any other health intervention. Um, we're talking about following millions of doses of administration of these vaccines across multiple different countries in the world. Mm -hmm. um, we have studied most vaccines better than we've studied Tylenol. Wow. 
Um, so I, I can speak with significant confidence on that, and I have a lot of data available for me that I can use to back up those claims. And so that's an often, it's an easy discussion to have with someone who's reasonable enough to listen to the evidence and who doesn't think that I'm trying to deceive them mm -hmm. deliberately. Um, but yes, I have had patients who said, you know, I read on, you know, truthegle.gun or something. <laughs> truthegle.gun. <laughs> that you know vaccines are actually a conspiracy by bill gates to depopulate the world and did you just come out come up with truth eagle on the fly no that was from snl great. i, oh, I okay. stole that from snl <laughs> so oh, that's great. but you know that's it that's a pretty typical sure yeah uh, and, and well i and, and full disclosure like nate and i have had conversations about vaccinations before because my three kids or at least my first two i don't know I haven't been as involved in the vaccination of our of our third, but um, uh, we did like delayed vaccination schedules for my first two kids. And it was out of this like hesitancy, concern. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of friends who were kind of uh, were on alternative vaccination schedules slash not vaccinating their kids. And so like we had concerns because those friends were in our ear talking to us. And like we didn't know we went and talked to our doctor, probably a very similar conversation to what mm -hmm. you're having. And um, and we went with like an alternative, you know, schedule where we didn't have as many at once and all these things, because what we had heard was like that much is a lot for the body to process. And then you had told me when we <laughs> talked about that, you're like, like if your kid puts a Lego in their mouth or something like or some like toy in their mouth that has a bunch of bacteria on or like, like, like they've gotten millions of times as many challenges to their immune system in that one thing. Yeah. Explain that just for somebody who's maybe sure. in my position. Like, I don't want to like I. I I guess what I'm saying is like, obviously this conversation is not about vaccinations. So right. like hit the fast forward button a couple minutes if you want. But I feel like we've touched on it enough that maybe we should just get your thoughts on someone who might be in a similar position. Like what would you share with them that might encourage them to be like, okay, here's the values of vaccinations and here's why it's important. Okay. So the first thing I want to emphasize is, again, we have studied vaccines more than almost any other public health intervention. Um, across not just the U.S., but multiple countries across the world. Um, in particular, we've studied the question of does it increase the likelihood of getting another disease? People talk about things like autism or autoimmune conditions. The answer to that is a resounding definitive no. And I say that with more confidence than I can say about 99% of the things we discuss in medicine because of how well it's been studied and the fact that we have so many people to study who receive these vaccines. Um, so... I'm going to do a little bit of hand-waving here. There are studies available that we can bring up if anyone has any specific questions about this. But ultimately, if you compare children who are vaccinated to ones who are not, adjusting for risk factors like their ability to access health care in the first place, their level of education, there is no increased risk of getting autism or many of these other uh, autoimmune conditions in mm -hmm. the vaccinated group. For me, that basically should end the discussion because if someone says, well, what about this chemical or that chemical? It doesn't matter. If that chemical is in the vaccine and the entire vaccine has been studied, if it doesn't increase the risk, picking out individual components makes no difference. Yeah. It would be like if I drank a glass of water and lived, you could tell me, but that water was filled with all these poisons. And I said, yet I'm alive. Yeah. And you could tell me the most deadly poison in the world is in that. But again, the proof is I'm still perfectly fine. Yeah. If we have proven with clinical studies that patients who are vaccinated are healthier than patients who are not, then trying to pick apart that and dispute that with claims about ingredients or about some other pro properties, it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. um, so if anyone is willing to simply trust the advice of a medical practitioner on this, yes, vaccination is a good idea. And the significant benefits come outweigh even the tiniest risk. 
um, and most of those risks are also overblown. But to answer some specific concerns, people talk about the number of shots that we give. And indeed, the number has gone up since my parents were kids, for example. But the way a vaccine works isn't by necessarily including the entirety of a, a you know, dead germ or a virus or a bacterium or something like that. All you really need to show the immune system is one tiny piece that it can build antibodies against. And an antibody is a protein produced by white blood cells that can inactivate or flag a germ, a pathogen, whether it's a virus, a bacteria, or a toxin, uh, in order to have the immune system remove it. So to do that, you could, for example, give someone just one tiny piece of one protein that is found on the surface of that bacteria. You don't even need to use the whole bacterium. And we've gotten better at refining what parts of these germs the immune system is attacking and showing them just those parts. Mm. So while my grandmother might have gotten a vaccine that included a bacteria that was heated and killed and injected into her body, the vaccines we might give now could include a piece of protein that's conjugated with uh, a sugar molecule, for example, that attracts the immune system and activates it. So when you consider all the things on the surface of that bacterial cell that could activate the immune system in all sorts of different unpredictable ways, even though we give more shots now, there are fewer antigens, fewer immune-stimulating components sure. than even our grandparents would have gotten. And none of that compares to actually encountering a wild germ like the ones that you find when you simply, again, put your fingers in your mouth. Yeah. Um, there's a lovely picture online that shows the handprint of a toddler on a Petri dish showing all the things that grow off of it, um, <laughs> which is horrifying, but also insightful. Yeah. Um, and even the entire childhood vaccination series, like all their life, all the shots, if you add all together and inject that all at once, it's going to be less of a challenge to their immune system than just one day walking around on the earth. Mm. Uh, the reason we separate them isn't because it's dangerous. It's because we want to form a way to a limit the number of you know times they have to poke a kid at once. Yeah. And B, we also want to try and focus the immune system on one specific antigen that we tend to flag, if you will. At a particular time where they're probably more likely to exactly. be subject to it, or it's a higher risk factor at that particular exactly. age for Which what is, it could do to them. Mm -hmm. okay. Which is why the... Um, so one round of shots we typically give between age four and age six, and we try and do that to coincide with going to kindergarten. Yep. Um, and additionally, we were doing things like uh, we vaccinate um, elderly patients against pneumococcus, um, and uh, that's uh, different types of things that cause pneumonia. We do it not just to protect them, but we do it so that when people begin entering the age when they typically become grandparents, mm. they get a booster on anything that could also be passed to the kids. Okay. Um, there's a lot of situations where we vaccinate people intending to protect not just them, but everyone around them, like rubella. Rubella is a fairly benign disease for an adult to get, but it can be deadly to uh, an unborn child. Yeah. So if anyone catches rubella and passes a pregnant woman, it can cause significant birth defects or even a miscarriage. Oh, so wow. we vaccinate people from rubella not to keep them safe from rubella, but to extinguish rubella from the community so that it can't affect pregnant patients. Gotcha. Um, so there's a lot of different strategies that we take for it. But, you know, just to boil down the main point that I'm making, we're not necessarily giving too many at any particular time because we couldn't possibly compete with Mother Nature, who exposes them to far more things than we do. But we do it in a very specific and organized way at particular intervals to protect people in different stages of their life or based on the people they're likely to come into contact with. So that's the strategy that we're using. It's an extremely well-studied strategy that's been the result of countless experts putting their heads together. This isn't just something we come up with on the fly. And so trying to change the particular schedule that we administer defeats that purpose to some degree. Yeah. 
So would it be accurate for, for me with having like no science background on how any of this stuff works? So <laughs> just uh, bear with me for a minute. So when you give a child a vaccination mm-hmm. and you set a protein, like as in, right? A protein pre- or, 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 or sugar something, or, something or something like that. Okay. Yeah. It, is it in essence showing a picture? Like, is this, I'm trying to dumb down mm-hmm. what, what this looks like for my brain. Okay. Yeah. Other people listening already got it. I'm trying to figure <laughs> this isn't for them. Now, um, is it in essence like showing a picture of to the immune system of what to look for and attack like so that they can put that in their rolodex of of things to be concerned with in the future and that's kind of what's taking place right yes and your immune system that might not have that picture of what to look for or when they get that picture it's already taken over it's already had a exactly big impact it it takes it takes about a week or two for your body to make antibodies okay when it's when it's exposed to a new germ okay or a new antigen i should say if you want to get technical with it yeah um, which is just a piece of it um, so that's why most people, when they have a cold, it lasts maybe 10 to 14 days because that's how long it takes for your immune system to get into gear. Um, now, there are things besides antibodies that it does. There's also a whole department of your immune system designed to fighting rogue cells, like cells that become cancer or that harbor viruses. That's a little bit different than antibodies. Okay. But the principle is the same. It takes sure. about you know 7 to 10 days. Um, but when and, it's already got it in its Rolodex and on, in essence, it's it's got it on deck and ready to go. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Yes. That's what that's what the vaccination is. Yes, exactly. Okay. So then you don't have that lag period. Um, it's able to deploy the most powerful weapon that it has uh, against those mm. particular invaders. And I think in the very first podcast when we were talking about evolution, I think I described the way that antibodies are developed. Oh, I think you did. I do recall this now. And so, if anyone wants to back. go back good and listen back. to that one. <laughs> that's the it's, first one. Zero, it's one zero, of the, one. I mean, I'm, I'm not an immunologist, but I yeah. still think that's one of the coolest things your body can do. Yeah. It's so cool that it can like create that, have it, have it on board, ready to go. Like mm-hmm. against. Well, you, against you can that. develop an entire army of white blood cells who have spent their entire life specializing in killing that specific germ and no others. Yet you might never see that germ. Yeah. Fascinating. So, Fascinating. And, yeah. and just to bring this back to vaccination slash anti-vaccination, that seven-day period that it might, seven to 10-day period it might take your body to create that may not be life or death for you and me as adults who maybe can withstand being sick for that period of time, obviously depending upon the particular vaccination, depending upon what that illness looks like. But for an infant or for a toddler, it could be really critical. Yes. And obviously there are conditions where that's true for adults as well. If you have meningococcemia, which one of the meningitis vaccines prevents, Mm -hmm. you can wake up healthy and be dead before 10 PM. Mm. So it's, you know, we don't vaccinate for routine little things that don't matter. Yeah. Okay, so we've gone far off from access to healthcare, (laughs) but here's the deal. When I talk to you and we get on like a rabbit trail, it's so good. It's like, it's hard for me to stop. So, um, but let's stop there. That's a good kind of landing point. No, don't, don't apologize. (laughs) I was asking the questions and I, and I'm very happy about the knowledge and I'm confident there's people out there listening that are going to be happy to have had that knowledge. But so we covered access, um, access could differ in some ways. But it would probably, would it be fair to just say the healthcare industry is going to have to make some adjustments, which might be adjustments to uh, having less of a need at the emergency rooms and more of a need at, um, you know, uh, in, in, in preventative care and, you know, mm-hmm. such like that. Like, but it, there's going to be an adjustment period probably necessary, but ultimately access, it could mean that you're going to get pushed a little further back in line, but it's not going to be that big of a deal or 
you, do you anticipate it would be a really big deal? I'm just. I, I don't think it's going to be as big a deal as people make it out to okay. be. Okay. Okay. But there may be some noticeable changes, especially for some non-emergent illnesses that can probably wait. Okay. Um, but again, one of the tenets of the American healthcare philosophy is I want it now. <laughs> one of the tenets of the American philosophy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, you know, it's often difficult for people to realize where they stand in line, like who's sicker than me and, you know, who can I wait for to go ahead of me? Yeah. And um, patients may not have a good idea. I mean, for them, they they only have their own personal experience. And it's difficult to say that, okay, you're sicker than me. You take my place in line. Mm, Yeah. Not that we were not that people are going to be like acutely ill in the streets. I don't think that's the kind of thing we're going to be triaging per se. Sure. I mean, no more than we already are now. Hospitals regularly hit capacity and end up having to divert ambulances to other hospitals down the road. I mean, that's we have to make triage decisions. We have to say, I have one ICU bed open right now, and I have three hospitals trying to transfer a patient. Which one is sickest? Which one needs this care now? Mm. Like that's a that's a reality that all hospitals deal with right now today. Now, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. What about quality of care? So quality. And there's a few different ways of measuring quality, but generally we want it to be safe and effective. We want to give people treatment that works at as minimal risk as we can achieve. And when it comes to enforcing quality, uh, the government has taken some considerable effort with that in terms of things like local health departments or with requirements that we meet certain regulatory standards. And a lot of that has led to significant improvements in both the safety and the efficacy of care that we deliver. Mm -hmm. And I talked last time about preoperative checklists for surgery. So there was a time, it still happens on very rare occasions that someone comes in for a surgery and the wrong patient gets the wrong surgery or the surgery is performed on the wrong limb. You know, the left knee gets replaced instead of the right one that had the arthritis. That still happens? Very rarely. Very rarely. It, it like okay. makes news when it happens. Oh, of course it does. Uh, yeah. But one of the things that dramatically reduced the likelihood of that happening is a simple pre-op checklist. You know, while we're in the operating room, all scrubbed, gowned and gloved and ready to go, we pause and say, time out. This is, you know, Mr. Bill Smith, who is here to get this procedure. We're going to do it on this leg. His allergies are blank, blank, and blank. We have prepared this instrument that we're going to need for the procedure. And we have these special precautions that we're going to take, etc. Mm. And, you know, at first there was a little bit of a hesitancy. Like, of course, I know which patient I'm operating on. Duh. But, you know, it's the research has shown that that simple step has caught a lot of mistakes before they got to a patient. Wow. And... You know, when you're rushed and you have, you know, a dozen cases to do that day, you know, it's not wrong for someone to step in and say, okay, hold on, time out. Let's make sure we're doing this right. And, you know, having a way of doing that that's standardized across all hospitals is very important because people who go to a hospital down the street should know they're going to get the best care, just like if they went to the hospital in their backyard. And that's one way that quality is facilitated by universal single-payer healthcare because often the same standards are applied to everyone. Yeah. And if a hospital wants to go above and beyond and say, hey, I know we have a complication rate of 1%, but we're going to make it 0.5, they're still free to do so. Mm-hmm. They're still free to say, like, our hospital is providing better care than that hospital down the street um, if, if that's something that they wanted to pursue. Yeah. Um, now, when it comes to the services that a healthcare provider can administer, that's one thing, but quality also applies to the tools that we have to do so. And so if we're talking about technology or medications, then things may take a little different turn. If we have a company who has the sole rights to provide, you know, drug X or technology Y. So we were talking pharmaceutical companies. Yeah, pharmaceutical or device companies. 
And if they happen to have that exclusive deal with this single-payer government health care, then there is diminishing incentive for them to compete in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, even if another company were to come along and say, hey, we're going to come up with a better product than you, so you know, watch your back or we're going to get that contract. If they're not getting any business because this other entity has an exclusive deal, then they probably won't have the necessary finance or tools to develop sufficient competition to unseat whoever currently has that position. Uh, now, the government is at liberty to try and correct this. They can say, hey, we noticed that ever since we made this deal with company so-and-so, you know, our quality has gone down, you know, more patients are having complications, you know, your pacemaker fell apart last week, like we need to work on this or we're going to take it away. Um, they also have the ability to, let's say we're going to find this company until it gets fixed. And, you know, what are you going to do? Go find another buyer for your products? No. Mm. So that bargaining power comes into play again in trying to enforce quality standards. Yeah. So I don't think it's quite the end of the world. It is a little bit anti-competitive, though. That's the that's that's the problem with the American capitalistic model, right. right? Is that competition drives down costs typically. So you could also maybe even think, and I don't know if this is an idea that's out there, you could also think that if in a universal healthcare system or single payer, the government could only commit a certain percentage of particular devices or per prescriptions. They could, they could be mandated to not go over 50% with one particular organization they could for their for their use that they, they have could. to but then it creates them having to work with more entities right and it also and, and it might also be that there's only one entity doing that and, and it might limit the physician's ability to choose so oh, if they said okay. we're not going to spend more than 50 percent of our money on you know the company that makes that hip joint replacement i could say but i've looked at the studies on that hip joint replacement and it seems better i want to give my patient that one they could say, well, tough luck. We've already spent our allotted sum for that particular provider. So now oh, you have to wow. use this off-brand device that you don't want to use. Yeah, I didn't think about that. And so that's bad for the patient and for the providers who might insist that one option is better. Maybe legitimately so. Mm. What do you think remedies that particular problem? I think that the most likely way of fixing it would be having limitations on the terms of these agreements. So if you say, okay, well, congratulations, you're officially the hip joint replacement maker of, you know, the American healthcare system, you know, we will be reevaluating this contract in one year. Mm -hmm. So every other company out there, you've got a year to do all the R&D that you need to try and, you know, generate the studies to demonstrate your product is superior or tune it up where it isn't, and then we'll reevaluate. And to try to dethrone. Yes. The and, and the hope is that in the meantime those companies can stay afloat, which is tricky to do when someone else is taking all your business. Okay, so Cynical Justin, here we go. Cynical Justin, you're going to be seeing a lot of Cynical Justin today. So Cynical Justin with that particular model thinks, oh man, pay to play is just all over our politics right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking, you know, Joe Cool down the street, that's actually a bad reference. Um, Joe down the street is creating, you know, his cool new hip replacement you know, idea, okay? Because mm -hmm. he has a background in technology and he knows how he's going to do it better, whatever. He creates it. And then, you know, Sally down the street creates hers. Joe gets that first contract. Sally's is better. Mm -hmm. But she's just got to figure out how to make, how to mass produce it and get uh -huh. it ready to go to the government. She goes to the government with that. But Joe now, because he's in already, right? He's got lobbyists now. Mm -hmm. Lobbying. Who's making the decision for what you'll choose because what I would say is I would say this is going to become the new lobby not that it yes. doesn't already exist to some extent I would guess but 
man, you're talking about a lot of money in those government contracts. Oh, you're talking yes. about millions, billions oh, of dollars. Oh, yes. So um, Joe and Sally are going to be at war. And if Joe has the lobbyists on his side or if he's already got a position of power and influence mm-hmm. that Sally doesn't have... Um, and obviously, I'm making this a simple analogy, but 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 for the sake of it, we already see the impact that lobbyists have on our governing on on all different forms of government and policy, to where it's not always working out for what's best for the people. It's yes. often working out at what's best for the corporations. Yes. So my concern is Joe has a corporation, Sally has a corporation, and they're both trying to sell a product, but they're not trying to sell it to me. They're trying to sell it to the government who has a potential uh, lobbyist that could influence that that process where it wouldn't be all about data. How do you overcome that potential thing? Because I don't even know who would be making the decision about this. You could create a yes. panel of doctors potentially that could have yes. input in it. Who are and they can also be bought off as well. And yeah. doctors could be bought off, exactly. So what do you think mitigates that? Um... <laughs> Nothing easily fixable. Okay, so cynical Justin so, has reason to be cynical. <laughs> very much so. And, and that is one of the biggest arguments against a universal healthcare single-payer system because, okay. you know, we don't trust the government with a lot of things. Why would we trust sure. them with this? Yeah. And, you know, the government may not have the best track record of keeping all of its constituents' interests at heart. And again, look no further than the fact that cigarettes are legal in the United States. Yep. And pharmacies can sell them sometimes. Mm-hmm. And the only reason it continues to be there is because of the money involved. That is the reason. That's it. Yeah. And as long as that still happens, then as far as I'm concerned, anyone who's behind that decision does not have the health of the country in the best interests. Yeah. And like I, I will never run out of horrible things to say about smoking, obviously. Yeah. No, you know, I we, think... we talked about that extensively last time. But that is an example of how the system fails to consider the people's best interests over money. Sure. But regardless, the system as it is now is still very much easy to manipulate. Um, for all the reasons you describe, if it's not the government making the decisions on what they'll you know, offer coverage for and what they won't, it'll be someone else and you can always go to and buy off that person. Yeah. Now, obviously, when it comes to the provider level, when it comes to doctors like me, there are laws on what people can and can't do to entice me to prescribe their product or use their device or whatever. And there are also penalties on me if someone can show that I've done that, if I've taken a bribe for prescribing more of this drug or that drug. Mm -hmm. So this is a problem that people are aware of and are working to fix. And certainly it is a lot better now than it was 50 years ago even. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing, and we might have talked about this last time, but I remember seeing, um, I just remember when I was a kid, I would always see these business guys come in in suits with like briefcases, mm -hmm. like almost more like, travel cases like what you would have like what you'd bring on like luggage that you yes. bring on, like, you know, and they would they they would be there and be like can i talk to the doctor like and like they would have a pamphlet and stuff and then i realized mm-hmm. after a while these are pharmaceutical reps trying correct. to encourage this doctor to sell their you know blood pressure medicine or whatever mm-hmm. you know fill in the blank like that that they're gonna have to prescribe blood pressure medicine they mm-hmm. know that um, mm-hmm. why not prescribe ours and Look, uh, it's interesting that our country allows for ads for you know for yeah, that's for, weird. <laughs> for for pharmaceutical uh, drugs and and uh, allows for people to 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 roll up with their briefcases and you know luggage to to give away free samples probably to those doctors and encourage mm-hmm. them to take their you know, you know to prescribe their drug, but there are actual legitimate kickbacks like 
we'll pay for you to come to this conference. I think you you might have mentioned this last time. I, I don't mentioned know if we that as an example of I, I mentioned um, that as an example of something that is now illegal. <laughs> yeah, that's now illegal. Yes. So like, yeah, come to our conference in Hawaii or whatever. Um, what is legal right now then? Like, or what? Or what's a what's a good example of what doctors can get in trouble for? Well, those are two opposite yes, questions. Yes, exactly. I want to know. Well, there's obviously an industry that's probably still trying to bend the rules would be what I'm saying. Yes. And so how are they trying to bend those rules? That's what I'm asking about crossing the line. But maybe before you say that, what is the line now? Because the ACA created a line, right? Well, and additionally, there is a way that you can actually look up any particular physician and see what their disclosed conflicts of interest are, if you will, like how much money they've received Okay. Um, from this company or that company. Another thing is whenever we're giving a presentation in an academic setting, we have to have a, you know, a slide on our PowerPoint or something regarding our disclosures. Like, hey, I'm going to be talking about you know, uh, stomach diseases, and I just want you to know that I have stock in Pepsid or something like that. Mm. Um, in which case, that's probably a poor person to invite to give that presentation. Sure. <laughs> but, <you> sure. know, <laughs> if they're going to be talking about how wonderful a medicine Pepsid is. Um, <laughs> and again, all of these examples I'm coming up with just off the top of my head, yeah, I have yeah, yeah. no particular thoughts about any of these companies sure, sure, sure. that I'm willing to air on a podcast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's the, the most that they're permitted to do is perhaps buy you lunch. Okay. And that's just based on the law. Individual hospitals may have policies that differ. So, for example, you know, even though legally they're allowed to buy me lunch, I am not allowed to partake of it in my position. Mm -hmm. And we keep them as far away as possible from any learners, any students or residents or anything like that. Mm. So, um, I, it's... I'm trying to think of, to answer your question, how do they game the system? Probably the most generous thing they can do for us that's not explicitly a quid pro quo mm -hmm. is that they can provide funding for educational activities that they don't have any role in developing. Uh, so um, as so an they example, can give you grants or something? Yeah, like that? they can do something like that. Or, you know, every year there's a few big meetings in my specialty, like the American College of Cardiology sessions, American Heart Association, Heart Rhythm Society. Um, some of these companies might say like, hey, you know, we will give a scholarship for someone to go down to one of those conferences or we'll, you know, buy your residence a textbook or something like that. Mm, okay. And, you know, it, it gets a little showy like, oh, this textbook is courtesy of, you know, so-and-so pharmaceuticals and whatever. We all kind of roll our eyes because we know that's part of the game. <laughs> but there is no expectation that in exchange for that, we do something for them. Yeah. Now, it may kind of leave them with warm, fuzzy thoughts about you if you do something like that. Yeah. But it's not contingent on us using their product and it may leave you at the very least being advertised to about their product even um, if you don't have that quid pro quo their name got in front of your face it right? did it did yeah interesting interesting yeah okay 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 i have a i have a scenario do you think we're done with those three buckets of kind of like cost quality and um access, and access? The other one Anything else we need to say about any of those before I go? A I think direction? I think that's the big stuff. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So here's the here's what I'm gonna I'm gonna say is happening. Okay. We're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna do this. I'm running for president in 2020. Okay. okay? Which, sorry guys, I'm not. But I'll consider 2024. We'll, we'll we'll push it off a little longer. Now, okay. So I'm gonna run for president in 2020. I'm gonna run as an independent candidate. Okay. We're just gonna put that out there now. So no one on either side <laughs> right now is upset. Um, 
it's a little late for for, for me to be running. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't decided yet. <laughs> um, so uh, so I'll run as an independent candidate. And here's the deal: I decide healthcare is going to be a big part of my campaign. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I say, you know what? I heard about this, you know, young bright doctor Nathan McConkey, and I I'm I want to sit him down, and I just want to ask him, what should I do? As a candidate, Hmm. what should I, what should I champion? What should I, what change can I possibly encourage us to move forward? And here's what I want to say. I I, I don't want you to be thinking about the end. Like, like think of it as a ladder, for example. I'm not asking you to tell me where we need to get to. I'm saying, what is the next rung that I need to be championing that we need to get to, to ultimately fix this problem. <laughs> if I'm a presidential candidate, I can make all kinds of promises, but ultimately I think some of the promises we hear from our politicians are ideas that are going to take 20 years to actually happen. If and they in, can happen. If at all. they can happen at all. Yeah. And so they're not going to happen within their, within their presidency or within their time um, in office. So I sit you down and I say, I'm running for president and I want your feedback on what you think would be some, just simple, easy to pass, executable legislation to fix this super compl- complex problem, or at least to get the ball rolling on fixing it. You say what? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Do you like that scenario? I don't know. No, I, I by, don't. By the way, I did not. I did not prepare Nate for the scenario, no, so no, he no, might I, not be comfortable. I answering. figured it was coming. So here's the problem. Okay? We got to We got to We got to At some point, merge this with politics yeah. because this is a political. So the problem football. is. The political answer is probably not the correct answer. Okay. If you came to me instead and said, I am a president in my second term, I am not accountable to the voters. What should I do to improve the health of the United States? Okay, let's do that. That's fine. I'm good with that. Okay, one ban cigarettes, period. End of story. Okay. Like no one has any business selling them. All right. Okay. Now, I don't think that it should be criminalized if someone happens to be in possession of them because I think that opens the door for a lot of problems that we're currently seeing. A but lot of justice problems. A lot of justice yeah, yeah, problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. But at least no one should be making or selling them in the United States. And if you do that, we will close entire wards of the hospital in a few years. The other thing is... That is awesome. Yes. That is not going to help me with the libertarian. No. <laughs> no. No, it is not. Okay, okay. Okay. I got you. All right. That's a good That's that's good advice. So so right away, right there, and just to, just to put that in, 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 in the calculation here... We're not talking about fixing insurance here. We're not talking mm-hmm. about changing hospitals. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about changing the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. But we're saying if we could remove this product from our country mm-hmm. to a certain extent, to the extent that we have the power to legislatively, mm-hmm. we would remedy so much of that first bucket that we talked about, yes. which is the diseases that are ultimately riddling our country. Mm-hmm. And okay. I, I would focus all of my recommendations to you in regard to those three buckets, because if I identified them as the biggest problems, I'd be an idiot for not offering solutions that address them. Yes. And again, when it comes to preventable diseases, the top three causes of death in our country, which is heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, and um, malignant neoplasms or cancer, all three of those are significantly driven up by smoking specifically. Mm. And the second point to that is the metabolic syndrome, which is the consequences of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, etc. All of that 
happens as a result of, in many cases, lifestyle factors. Not to say that people don't get those conditions by bad luck or genetics or the environment, but at least a good 50% mm -hmm. of it comes from preventable choices. Have you ever heard of a presidential candidate running on, I will ban cigarettes on day one no. of the presidency? <laughs> no, I haven't. How weird is that? There's an independent candidate in 2020 running, though, that I heard is going to do that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and I mean, we've, we've done a lot to, to try and force people away from cigarettes. Yeah. You know, we've banned smoking indoors in most public institutions. And, and probably as a result of that, smoking rates have declined significantly. Yeah. And, and we as a country have decided we would rather let people make the choice themselves than make it for them. Yeah. But if you really want a very quick and efficacious result that will change the burden of disease in this country, that would be the way to do it. It okay. would not be a pleasant one. People would make a fuss. Oh, yeah. There would need to be a mechanism in place to take care of the people who are addicted but ultimately that has to happen eventually. Okay. The second thing is I would probably try and prioritize health education in regards to what actually constitutes good dietary advice because right now people are utterly awash in terrible advice. Mm. And again, if you go on Facebook and say, I was just diagnosed with chronic disease X, you will be inundated with recommendations from well-meaning but perhaps misinformed people with all the advice that they have, which is typically driven by someone making money off of it. Mm. Even if that's not you personally, someone has significant vested interest in spreading the idea that juice blank or detox blank or oil blank is good for you. It's, it's a sizable industry. And I think a lot of it would have to involve curtailing sources of misinformation and also for ensuring that people have basic health education. And right now, the health education that's taught in schools is not cutting it mm -hmm. for a number of different reasons. But many people are simply not aware of the choices that they make that are leading to them being less healthy. And when it comes to diet, that's a big one. Okay. Um, so, so you would encourage a presidential candidate or a president in their second term to consider how they could um, champion at a childhood level maybe, but also at a public health level in general, better nutrition practices and more nutrition practices that are founded in... Um, in evidence real, real evidence-based yes. science practices mm -hmm. largely targeting um, obesity. I think that's the big one. Yeah. But you know, even broader than that, I do think that people should be, and this also won't be popular, I think people should be penalized for spreading misinformation. Mm -hmm. I think when someone goes online and posts that, you know, there was a famous doctor who said vaccines cause autism and there's poison in it. When people say that, they endanger lives. People die because of those sorts of statements. Mm -hmm. And I think people ought to be held accountable for that. Okay. And so not, not just anyone should be able to, and I realize this infringes on freedom of speech to some degree. Yeah. But when speech has consequences, there have to be some basic regulations on it. Now, I don't think that that should be just, you know, whatever the doctor says people should say or not say. I think there should be active discussion. But when people are actively fabricating information, yeah. like Dr. Andrew Wakefield did, who was a gentleman who fabricated data to first postulate the idea that the MMR vaccine caused autism, he was struck off the registry. He lost his medical license in the UK. But then he came to the US and now he's writing books and going on tours and making millions. Like we shouldn't be allowing that. Yeah. If someone is known to have deliberately lied to harm the health of the public for money, that needs to have consequences. Yeah. That and needs to be regulated in some exactly some way. Exactly. Okay. And okay. and that applies to every pseudoscience peddler of the week okay. who is, you know, putting out television series or making movies about their 
wild theories about what causes cancer or about what's wrong with this drug or that doctor. And there's a lot of people who make a lot of money out of spreading misinformation and that needs to be curtailed. Yeah, the problem with misinformation right now is going to be an interesting one to solve because it's not just in healthcare. It's in all places. Like fact, trying to find the facts in what someone says, whether they're a politician mm-hmm. or a business leader, in it's, anyone, it's is becoming one, more yeah. difficult. Yeah. Like Snopes.com is a place I regular just because I'm like, okay, I just saw this random article. Is that even true? And it's like sometimes I have to go there and just see like, is this even true? Or, or yeah. other like fact check websites right. like trying to figure out like yeah, and what are the facts here? Like what, what is going on? Like, it, I, and it's I'm, hard to tell for a lot of these things. Yeah, and exactly, yeah. But science is unique in many ways in that with science most of what we do we try and predicate on some objective demonstrable evidence yes like if you don't believe me that vaccines don't cause autism we can go down and pull up the original research articles we can go to the data banks from the individuals who participate in those studies and i can show you that evidence yeah it's a little different to say like well you know so and so made this phone call and we don't have it on record but i believe he said this yeah like science is wonderful because it often has answers yes now that's not true for everything we do in science and it may not mean those answers apply to you specifically but for the the most egregious claims that people can make you know, very often we do have a resounding yes or no in response. Do you think, like, I, I also think of, like, educationally, I grew up with, like, that pyramid chart mm-hmm. of the food. Yeah. Do you think, like, is that something that kids are still learning today? The pyramid uh, chart? I don't, I don't think so, no. I think they're using my plate. Okay, my plate. Okay, yeah. so, so a plate that kind of shows how their like the food general should proportions be divided or whatever? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah, the food pyramid... Uh, there's a lot wrong with the food pyramid. Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I know the food pyramid has been uh, shown to be to have some real concerns. Yes, yes, and a lot of those concerns are probably predicated on the fact that you know the people who produce that image and who propagate it are also receiving money from people who make certain products that appear on that food pyramid. Cool. Yep, this is the problem. This, this is, is the this problem. is the problem with 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 the private part intersecting with the public yes. health part yes. that we were talking about earlier. The potential for lobbying for certain things to be put in front of you know, exactly. populations. Same with the cigarette lobby did the same exact right, thing. Right. So, yeah. so it's easy for me to say I have the perfect curriculum that everyone in the country should learn about how to recognize good and bad science and how to know you know what claims are true and which are not. But even if you trusted me, which you shouldn't without knowing anything about me, you may not trust the person who takes the place after me. And once we establish a person or an entity or an organization that has that sort of power, it is just begging to be abused by someone. Mm-hmm. So I, I postulate this as how it would work in an ideal world. I don't think that's a feasible thing for us to pull off. Mm. Um, See, because I would have loved to learn in high school how to count my macros. Yeah. Like, why doesn't everyone learn that? But you know, I, even beyond I, that, I think one of the biggest deficiencies in education, whether it's related to health or to science in general, is that people are not taught how to evaluate evidence. Ooh, yeah. And so critical and, thinking. And man. that's critical the reason thinking. why, you know, if I say, hey, here's a study involving 25 million administrations of the AMR vaccine, someone will sooner believe. I'm sorry if anyone actually has an Aunt Susan, but if Aunt Susan comes along, <laughs> whoever has an Aunt Susan, um, I swear I just wow, can't with that name. Stand but like, if you know, if Aunt Susan comes along and tells you a riveting, heart-wrenching story to the contrary, you'll believe her N of one, her single individual case, as opposed to the N of twenty-five million. And people, 
there's a number of things. One is they don't understand statistics and probability very well, and so they can't recognize the possible risks and possible benefits. They're not mathematically minded. No, and they also don't recognize the difference between you know a pathos argument founded in you know passion and emotion versus a logos argument mm-hmm. founded in logic and reasoning. We change our mind. This is what I'm learning, and you tell me if you think I'm wrong. The pathos argument slash I would call it a narrative based connection. Mm-hmm. Typically, will change your mind before a data-centered, driven model will. Mm-hmm. Like if you can't put the story or the passion to the data, then it can be hard to change someone's mind. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Like connecting and, the and, dots. And I, yeah, and I remember, you know, in my in my journey to become a scientist and eventually a physician, I remember where those like transition points occurred, where. You know, I, I had some deeply held belief that I grew up with and I saw in front of me like, wait, but this doesn't match up with the data, mm. uh, which one is true. And, you know, it took a few occasions of actually seeing how the data worked out and seeing how, you know, the the scientific model was predicting outcomes better than just my own personal. Here's what I wish would happen. Mm-hmm. And I had to kind of learn to trust that system and understand how it works when it doesn't work, what limitations it has. And and that's not really something that most people in the population learn. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's so good because I, I often argue, for example, like you've been handed a worldview or a way of seeing things based on maybe some, like I always use this from a theological standpoint of you've been handed a certain way of seeing scripture and now someone might be challenging that way of understanding God or way of understanding the scriptures, right? Mm-hmm. But if you don't also connect that to people and the outcome maybe of those theologies on people, like the narrative matters. Does that yeah. make sense? And yeah. yes, there's all kinds of other data points maybe to consider and things, but you have to narrativize even those data points to make it. To When Aunt Susan comes to me, <laughs> I have to be able to also have some passion for the, some passion argument, or at least in my mind, a connection with why this is important yeah which we often don't give yes that's what i guess i'm trying to say yeah. there that that passion point has to also we're just i i at least i don't believe at large we are data-driven beings mm-hmm. like we are far more emotional at least in our decision making yeah i don't know if that's true but that's i mean just it's, what it's probably observed. true honestly now i mean being being someone who deals in data in science we often try and explicitly exclude emotion as best we can we take out the stories so yeah. it doesn't cloud the data um, for, for that exact reason, yeah. because of how powerful those stories are. Um, but at the same time, you know, we also have to recognize when the data is incorrect or when we've overlooked something. And sometimes the story is the thing that brings that up. But, you know, one story should not weigh you know, 25 million data points as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but reconciling the two is a unique challenge that we face. Yeah, yeah. Or importing that story into, OK, here's the here's the data. And right. here's a practical story right. that all shows those, why that data yes. is important. All those 25 million data, that, yeah. those are all individual stories for those people. Yes, yes, yes. It's exactly. just we don't always pull them up and put them yeah. in front each of Each of us. them have a name. Each of them have a story. Each yep. of them have, yeah, that's good. That's good. Okay, so anything else okay. you would tell Justin 2020? All right, so <laughs> I would tell him, get rid of cigarettes, teach people how to be healthier, because often they just do not know what's happening. Yeah, so um, more well-informed public around their health. Yes, okay. yes. Um, prevent the spread of misinformation okay. and propagate good information as well. Um, find the people who are making money off of making people sick and disincentivize that money. 
Mm. So punish those people who are making money off making people sick. Yes, yeah. and, and honestly, I would extend that even to something like you know, don't advertise sugary cereals during you know cartoons for children. Mm-hmm. Like those are people who are selling an unhealthy product to children. Yeah. Like why should that be allowed? Yeah. Um, you know, just honestly, the the advertisement of food in general is something that probably plays a significant role. But I'm, the libertarians are probably exploding right now. So oh, I'm no, not gonna... they exploded a long time ago. Nate. Oh, good. <laughs> While they're gone, <laughs> they, they <laughs> yeah. hit the pause button, unsubscribe right. from the episode. I don't know exactly. Okay. Like I don't think any value. I don't think any liberty that you prize you prize more than your own life. Yeah. And if there's anything that I would say I'm okay infringing on some freedoms, it's in the preservation of life. Yeah. Which is a pro-life position, like this is a, this is a pro like a life-giving position. Like it's, I think the hard thing is is like sometimes this freedom taking away someone's freedom is seen as like limiting life or the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit. Like, mm-hmm. and I guess the hard thing is is like, but if it's ruining our country's economy and potentially putting a lot of people at risk of not even having healthcare mm-hmm. because it's exacerbating our healthcare problem and crisis, for example. As you've mentioned, cigarettes may very well be doing that. They are 100% doing that. Okay, yeah. 100% doing that. Then at that point, I would say, well, that's a freedom worth reconsidering. Yes. And I would also say it's important to also reference, I think it's ridiculous that you have to wait till you're 21 to drink alcohol, but you can go buy a pack of cigarettes at 18. Although we're changing that. What is, yeah, yeah, we are changing that. My question is, is like for the amount of time that we had that, the cognitive dissonance that must have existed for mm-hmm. us to be able to say, apparently a 21-year-old is responsible enough to drink. Yes. But an 18-year-old is responsible enough to make the decision to put this in their lungs. Yes. Like, which is by all markers, and correct me if I'm wrong, far more dangerous than an alcoholic beverage. I think so. I mean, now there are a lot of dangers with alcohol, especially abusing it. So I'm yeah, not especially when minimize, you're behind the wheel of a vehicle. Yeah, yeah, I'm not trying to minimize those dangers. I'm just saying, in comparison to the two, one. I would say far more people are killed by cigarettes than alcohol. Yes, exactly. And there's there's a safe amount of alcohol. There is a level of alcohol to consume that has health benefits. Yeah. There is no amount of cigarette smoking that has a benefit. Yes. And what I always find interesting is, <laughs> as a youth pastor, I found this out because when I was young and a youth pastor we would rent 15 passenger vans Mm -hmm. and I could not rent a 15 passenger van. Enterprise would not rent to me unless I was 25 or older. (laughs) So enterprise's level of like responsible enough to rent a car (laughs) was 25. Right. You think that's bad? So when I was 25, yeah, I had already been a doctor for over a year. Yeah. So I was allowed to like take a knife to a human being and cut them open before I was able to rent some categories of car. Yeah, well, and that's where I guess I'm just saying it seems very arbitrary the way we make those decisions. Now, obviously, the rental car industry, that's probably privatized. That's not necessarily a government entity probably making that decision. I don't know. But I guess just more, I can see there's an argument to say we're already taking people's freedom away from 18 to 21 with alcohol. Yeah, Like exactly. they're, they're an adult. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, and, definitely. And we're already taking people's freedom away in other places that are access to different things away. I, I, I do think... Um, that idea of like saying like this is the this is such an important reality to take away cigarettes is is very interesting to to, to contemplate. Again, the libertarians left a long time ago. So Good. keep going, keep going with I'm anything sorry, else you have. All right, Justin, twenty twenty needs your advice. All right, take all away right. cigarettes, <laughs> um, better health, better information. Punish people who are giving bad information. Punish people who are uh, directly targeting um, populations 
that would that are vulnerable that are vulnerable or would have um, an adverse health risk to purchasing their products or abusing their products, I guess. And again, the libertarians will comment that everything I'm talking about is about infringing freedoms, but that is really the only thing a government can do. Mm. A government can't be less present unless it's already undoing something it's done before. The only options it has are to intervene. Mm -hmm. And whenever you're intervening on someone, you're limiting them. So it's not that I think the best thing for health in general is to take away freedoms, but I do think that's the most powerful tool the government has. Whether it ought to use them or not is a matter of debate that I'll leave to people who enjoy arguing about such things. Sure. But that's what would have the most impact if you're just asking it from that standpoint. The worst thing you take away is the commercials for my kids for, you know, tricks. It's like, okay. Great. Uh, I, that's that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I, oh, and toys that make noise too. We yes, can uh, we can yes, ban those too. Yeah. <laughs> we can ban a lot of things if you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there's benefits to this too, guys. I'm sure libertarians have kids too. Um, the other thing that I would do is I would work on. So when it comes to the cost of either prescription drugs or of something like um, you know technology devices, that sort of thing. I would find a way to incentivize companies to comply with safety and quality standards in a way that doesn't necessarily eliminate competition as well. Because right now, the biggest thing that we do to promote innovation is by issuing patents. And you want to talk about restricting people's freedoms. If someone has a patent, no one else can produce that, even if doing so could be life-saving. I think that we might Mm. be a little bit too generous sometimes with protecting the intellectual property rights of some of these manufacturers. And I I think you and I are both similarly cynical in this regard, but I do believe that even if people weren't making money off of it, we have a lot of incentive to find cures for cancer, um, heart yeah. disease, major condition. I don't think that anyone who has witnessed a family member pass away from these conditions would say, I would only want to fix that if someone paid me. Yeah. Like, the idea that you could protect yourself or someone you love by developing a solution for these problems, I would like to think would encourage at least the most talented and driven people to continue working towards that goal. Mm-hmm. Um, that will also be an unpopular decision, but I think that's something that could also be helpful. Can you give me an actual like example of that? And what I mean by that is I know, I don't know if this is the same conversation, but I know there was maybe an insulin drug that was like that mm-hmm. skyrocketed in price, and people were like, "They were talking about." Yeah, I I I, I want to say that was one of the the conversations. And would that be a particular drug that had a patent that that ultimately, and and obviously insulin is a life saving, you know drug like in, in a lot of ways right like mm-hmm. would you argue it's a life-saving drug oh 100 yeah. okay Absolutely. so so this is a life-saving drug that has a huge impact on the individuals that need that um but the access to it was really limited did was that primarily because of a patent or because of um because i know certain drugs they don't go generic for a certain amount of time yeah or, or, like or i think i mentioned last time they can go ungeneric yeah or they can go the other way yeah, um yeah, yeah. so and that happened with colchicine and that kind of happened with a few other medicines that we use in my specialty but um there are a lot of reasons for it but usually they all operate by in some fashion limiting the competition's ability to provide a similar product Gotcha. And that could be because there was a patent, or it could be something a little bit more insidious, like what happened with inhalers. So I think I mentioned during the last session that okay. we decided we didn't want CFCs in inhalers. Yes. Now, are inhalers the number one source of CFCs that eat the ozone layer? Probably not. 
But someone who was in charge of regulating such things decided to target inhalers specifically, which is very suspicious to me. Mm. Do you think that maybe one of the companies who had a solution for CFC-free inhalers went to a government agency and said, look at how many CFCs are in these. I found a way Lobbied to do it without them. them. Exactly. Put it in maybe we should ban any inhaler that contains CFCs now. And then, of course, they happen to have the solution and their competitors may not. So it, it doesn't just have to be patents. There are a lot of insidious ways that you can get the government to limit your competition and then you can set whatever price you wish. Um, I think that is something you kind of have to recognize on a case-by-case basis because there's no reason to say, you know, we're going to forbid the practice of banning CFCs and inhalers. You know, like, I'm I'm glad they're not in there anymore. I don't think that was our leading priority. Yeah. And so... The costs may have outweighed the benefits in that exchange. Perhaps. So... For situations like that, a lot of it is just about being clever enough to outsmart whatever lobbyist is bringing a bill forward in front of you. And, you know, there there really is no way to achieve that without just having people who, you know, are intelligent enough to recognize when they're being taken for a ride and upstanding enough to resist when there's financial incentive to do the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're connecting even this particular one to campaign finance reform, potentially even into... Um, political finance reform in, in the right. sense of lobbying and, right. and that and, might and even have a big impact on the healthcare industry. Exactly. It would a huge impact. I would assume the healthcare industry. lobby, even from insurance companies, mm-hmm. is massive. Yes. Maybe even hospitals. Do hospitals have lobbyists? Um, certainly. Or influencers. So specialty societies do. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I'm a member of a number of societies like the American yeah. College of Cardiologists and the yeah. Heart Rhythm Society. And, you know, if, if Congress is putting forth a bill that says, like, hey, we're going to, you know, uh, allow this particular environmental contaminant that we know raises the risk of heart disease, we'll go down to D.C. Mm-hmm. and we will lobby against that bill. Yeah. Um, so it's and it's not- so lobbying. The, I just want to be clear. Lobbying is not always bad. I know no. this, but I'm just yeah. making that clear to the listeners like. We always have a negative view of lobbying. Lobbying is just simply our right as citizens mm-hmm. to encourage our legislators to do um, what's in what's in our interest or in mm-hmm. the interest of their constituents. Like that's yes. that's the goal of lobbying. The goal of lobbying is that we live in a democracy where we can have an impact and an input into what's being done. Mm-hmm. The problem is when it becomes a corporate lobbying yeah. entity, and, and, likely. I also, likely set to gain from <laughs> especially when there's money involved too. Money, like yeah. I don't I don't pay legislators to you know vote against cigarettes sure. or anything like yeah. that I don't do that um, but the tricky thing is if someone comes up and says hey you know here's a source of CFCs that harm the atmosphere we'd like to get rid of it you would have to have a pretty sophisticated understanding of the environment of healthcare to know why there's a perverse incentive for someone to make that claim yeah. right so you might not know because you may not I'm just know. just in 2020 Right. I don't know that that's going on. That someone has money to be made. That someone from has money to be made that. from convincing me that because I might be like, "Wow, I left that meeting. That seems pretty convincing. That we need to get rid of these CFC things." Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. interesting. So a doctor having a doctor come and lobby me could be the thing that lets me know. Oh, I see. There's money to be made in that, and mm-hmm. this is helpful. Yeah, to the information. So, yeah, it's. A lot of it, I think it wouldn't be surprising to you if you knew where they were coming from. Like if mm-hmm. someone from, 
you know, a company that makes EpiPens came along and said, hey, we want you to be aware of this problem with these substandard quality EpiPens on the market. We want you to ban them. You wouldn't have to really squint too hard to see the problem in yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, a lot of it I don't think is necessarily that these legislators are just unaware of what they're doing. I do think that a lot of it may be related to financial disincentives to do the right thing. Sure, corruption. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I also want to give them some credit and think sure. that you know, they may just not know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, have you covered everything you think you'd tell Justin 2020 if you had time with him? Uh, no, but that's him? good enough. Yeah, that's good enough. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, what do you anticipate the next 10 years of healthcare look like if you had to bet on what might change or what might stay the same? So if I was like, all right, Nate, um, put you know some money down on what changes you see coming, mm-hmm. put, you know, put your money in it, what do you think is going to change in the next 10 years? So... Or First stay the off, same. I don't think costs are going to be slowing down. I think they're going to continue going up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the problem is, as we've gotten better and better at prolonging life, we've gotten people into situations that we've never seen before. You know, it's it used to be, and there's a lot of success stories here, but so um, one of the childhood cancers, ALL, used to be something like 90% fatal. Mm. And now with modern treatment, we've gotten that down to 5%. We've completely reversed it. But now we have to have clinics specifically for adult survivors of pediatric cancers. Or in my case specifically, I have an interest in adult survivors of congenital heart disease. Because even though they can surgically repair certain types of heart conditions that you're born with, eventually later in life you may get normal adult heart disease problems on top of some very unusual structures in your heart. And it used to be no one knew what to do with these patients. We'd never seen these problems before. Mm. So as people get better at surviving these conditions, they present with new, more challenging problems that we then have to apply cutting edge research for, uh, and that drives up costs significantly. And so we have to be investing money in new techniques and new medications and new technology for taking care of these people. And that will only continue to become more expensive as we succeed in our mission to make them live even longer. And then the next problem arises. So, so healthcare is going to get more expensive. It's going to get people are going, going to, to live get longer. more specialized. People are going to be living longer and doing better with conditions they did not do as well with before. Okay. But the costs are going to rise far out of proportion to the benefits we're getting. And I think we have a responsibility to pursue those benefits. I am thrilled at how much progress we've made at treating some of these pediatric conditions that people are now surviving late into adulthood for. But we have to be prepared for that. And we also have to recognize when we're reaching a point where, you know, we're not quite getting the benefits that deserve the cost we're putting into it. Mm. You know, with this new chemotherapy drug, I can keep someone alive for maybe another month and it costs $100,000 to administer. Totally hypothetical. That's not a real drug, obviously. But there's a lot of things that come close to that neighborhood. You Mm. know, and a lot of times insurance companies are starting to step up and say, you know, we're, we're just not paying for this anymore. This is ridiculous. And, and we see that even now. We see health insurance companies saying, I know you've just developed this new technology for treating heart failure, but we're not going to pay for it. I'm not going to say the patient can't have it, but if the patient wants it, they have to start writing a check. And mm. for most people, that is the same as telling the patient you cannot have it because, mm-hmm. you know, this, this stuff isn't cheap. Yeah. So I think we're going to see more insurance companies put their foot down and say, like, we're not paying for, quote, futile care. And I think for a lot of people, the fears of, quote, death panels are not coming from hospitals or politicians. I think that insurance companies are the ones who are ultimately going to be deciding if someone receives care or not, because that's what they're doing now. Mm. And I think that's to good effect in some cases. I I do think that it's reasonable to say enough is enough at this point. Sure. 
Um, but we do that in the interests of the total population. Like if I if I completely exhaust the funds of this insurance company treating, you know, this particular patient with a rare genetic disease that requires all the world's specialists assembled, mm-hmm. I'm not doing good justice to everyone else whose care I'm responsible for. Mm-hmm. And that's the most painful reality of public health is that we have to, in some sense, triage and ration, whether we like using those words or not, mm-hmm. because we don't have enough to take care of everyone. We have to decide where that money is best served. Now, it's drilled into us in medical school that I, as a doctor, do not have the right to make that decision. My responsibility is to the patient sitting in front of me. I can't say, I'm going to not give you this care so I can give it to you know so-and-so down the hall. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, I'm not really trained in making those decisions of where that money is best spent. Now, with my public health degree, we touch on that to some extent, but I think ultimately there will have to be people whose job it is to decide where the money goes and where the care is sent. And, and we have some model of that in things with limited resources like transplants. I was going to say transplants is exactly where my mind went when you were talking exactly. about this. And uh, honestly, it went to the movie John Q. I, don't, I think that was I, the name of the movie. You remember that movie? I I have heard of it. I've, okay. never, I've refused to see it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting movie in the sense that, um, you know, do you, you know the premise then? I do. The premise Denzel Washington, of course, you know, um, uh, his son needs a heart transplant they won't put him on the list or he, he doesn't have insurance and access to it. Mm-hmm. So he literally brings a gun into the hospital and is like holding hostage to the hospital until they give him a heart until give give his kids a heart. Cause he's like, his kid's going to die. Um, is that something that, I mean, obviously that movie, that, that movie's got to be close to 20 years old. I feel like that movie came out when I was in high school. I don't mm-hmm. know that that movie's been around a while. Yeah. I feel like, um, but ultimately that's something that can happen even now. Right. Like if you don't have insurance, like you can't get a transplant without insurance. Right. Well, not only can you not get a transplant, but you're not going to be able to pay for the follow up care afterwards. Exactly. Because when people get like a heart transplant, for example, when you get a heart transplant, that is not the end of the story. You have to be on medications that we check blood levels for on a regular basis. You have to come in and get regular heart biopsies done to make sure Mm -hmm. you're not rejecting it from the inside out. It is a long, long, arduous journey, and it's definitely better than the alternative. But not only is it not cheap, but it's not effortless in terms of your participation in the system. So it's not like we install the heart and say, you know, go with God, be well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not an outpatient type. It's deal. a process. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is a, le- a lifelong journey. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so you're thinking that um, the list of what might typically be, the, that insurers might typically deny care for mm-hmm. because of cost or because of access or mm-hmm. what, whatever, um, may grow. I think so. And does, does that it, include it pre, not... pre-existing conditions, do you oh, think, potentially? Because mm-hmm, we haven't really touched on that. We haven't touched I, on I'm that just, yet. I'm curious I, about that. I think a lot, of the, a lot of the cost is coming from the cutting-edge stuff. Okay. So, like the new know, technology. If I come out tomorrow with a new artificial heart, okay, and because it's the first of its kind, I'm going to charge $200,000 for it. Okay. I think insurance companies would a priori say no. Yeah. I don't think they're going to scale back what they cover for existing technology because that's not really where the cost is coming from in those cases. Yeah. It's more in, you know, the new top of the line under it's, patent expensive it's stuff. It's coming from being the first to the table with that yes. technology. Yes. Right? And, Until and the fact it that it's, unproven. And it's it's the same with phones. Think of it as phones. Yeah. The newest phone comes out it's $1000 plus or whatever, but then a year later, it's six hundred dollars. Exactly, and because it's been scaled down or scaled back, exactly. or there's a newer model out or whatever. Yeah. So, so you may not the get same the iPhone eleven heart. You may yeah. get the three G. You know. <laughs> I don't want three G. I want that four G heart. I know, okay, I got I know. you. I got you. So, um, what about pre-existing conditions? Do you think anything will change in that in the uh, next ten years? 
I, I we, know we have not talked about that. I think even even there, last episode of yes. this episode, and I know whenever I hear a politician and Justin twenty twenty will be no different. I have to say something about pre existing conditions, Nate. Yes. So what would I say? Well, or what, first what's off, the landscape to, to describe the landscape until the Affordable Care Act under President Obama. It was legal to either deny or make cost prohibitive health insurance for people with, quote, a pre-existing condition. And given that the average adult has three things that could be described as a chronic disease, that was not a hard standard to meet. Um, and one of the most celebrated tenets of the Affordable Care Act was that that practice was no longer possible. Um, every politician since has praised that fact. It doesn't matter what people think about, quote, Obamacare in general. Everyone, even our current president, supports that particular principle. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not always say who came up with it, but that is something they've often celebrated. However, there are also people who are actively working at this moment to repeal it. Um, so that's not necessarily a guarantee for people moving forward. So in 10 years, what does Nate think will happen with pre-existing conditions? Um, considering that the only people with the power to undo that protection probably have lots of pre-existing conditions, um, if you can connect those dots, mm-hmm. I think it's going to stick around. I think that okay. is a fairly, it's a fairly bipartisan issue. People are uniformly in support of it. And everyone is impacted by it either directly or with a loved one. And everyone gets something eventually if they have the privilege of living long enough to get some of these diseases. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think that's going away because people have seen how good it is to have and how bad it was beforehand. Um, and that may mean higher premiums because, yeah. again, if insurance companies cover sicker people, they will spend more money, and that money has to come from someone. But the whole point of the insurance system is that no one person goes broke because of bad luck. And so we all pay into the system to know that if we're the one who has the bad luck, it's going to be there to catch us. Yeah. And there's no value to having insurance if you don't plan on ever getting sick. Yeah. And the goal for an insurance company would be my guess in the sense of like having that pre-existing clause mm-hmm. is that they can, in essence, the pool of people they're insuring, they're doing their best to try to guarantee health. Yes. And that's why insurance companies are happy to provide for you know, preventative care visits with no copay because they want you to be healthy because if you're not healthy, they're the ones who have to pay for it. Yeah. They can't just keep you from getting insurance in the first place. They can't drop you from their plan, which used to be legal. Mm-hmm. When you needed them the most, they were allowed to turn their back on you. Yeah. That's no longer the case. And now these powerful entities with wealth and numbers and authority behind them are incentivized to work in your best interests. And that is huge. I don't think anything else that we've done has made as big an impact as that. Mm. So I think that it would take an egregious degree of corruption for someone to take a position against that. Now, don't get me wrong. That has been done, but it has not been done under the spotlight. Yeah. And very frequently, it took the form of people saying, you know, we'll repeal, quote, Obamacare in its entirety, which would mean abolishing the protections for pre-existing conditions. Mm. Um, But there's a lot of ways that people can sort of frame that little mission without making it as obvious as to what they're doing. Gotcha. Um, but I, I think right now the cat's out of the bag. People are aware of it. Enough people are watching that specific issue because of what a big deal it was that if someone tried to take it away, there would be an outcry, I think. Is a pre-existing condition being pregnant? Um, can be? Could have been? Depending on how it's phrased, 
you could make that argument, especially if you had any complications, like if you had preeclampsia during your pregnancy, okay. or if you needed a C-section for any reason. Well, okay. then you have a surgical history as well. That's even worse. Okay. Oh, so surgical history is even worse uh, mm-hmm. as far as like, so if I've had a heart transplant, that's obviously a pre-existing condition. Oh, that, that's a lot of pre-existing a, conditions. A lot yes. of pre-existing conditions. And and in the past, I could have been denied coverage for that. Oh, now yes. I would Or dropped be, coverage that you already had. Or dropped coverage that you already had. Okay. But now under the ACA or under the ACA, that's uh, protected. Yes. Okay. Um, Nostradamus McConkie, any other <laughs> predictions in the healthcare field over the next 10 years? I know 10 years is a long time though. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I know it's, it's 2020. So 2030, we turn that calendar. What is the healthcare industry look like? Anything, any other big changes you see on the horizon? I think that, and we're already seeing this happen now. Many things that we wouldn't consider traditionally under the guise of healthcare will come under that umbrella. And you've, you've remarked a few times on the fact that when asking me how to fix the healthcare system, I talk about all these things that don't involve hospitals, like healthy eating, exercise, not smoking, etc. Um, we are already seeing insurance companies that will pay for you to have a gym membership. We are already seeing insurance companies that will give you funding to pay for a device like an Apple Watch that can monitor your EKG and tell if you're having heart rhythm problems. You know, we're seeing as they're incentivized to do so more and more, these companies are looking farther upstream at what's leading people to get sick and trying to intervene as early as possible. And so I think that there's going to be more money and more effort put into keeping people from getting sick because that's the only way that we're going to reduce the cost of treating them once they are. Yeah. I mean, I know, like, obviously I harp a lot about CrossFit. That's something I do. And it's also something that I am invested in as a CrossFit coach instructor. And they're a big thing. Like they talk a lot about it, like getting people healthy, like, Mm -hmm. and not just from a physical standpoint of like this, but they're trying to, you know, really have evidence-based research in what they're doing. Now, now obviously everyone's probably trying to do that, but even Mm -hmm. in, in older populations and scaling workouts for those particular individuals and um, targeting like disease and such like that, like even like CrossFit, CrossFit challenged, the soda companies in like legislation, like which yeah. I was like, oh, that's interesting that CrossFit thinks that's important, but for them, they were like, that's the deal. sugar is yeah. really a big problem, it like, is. and and it's and 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 how much of it you can get, and how big these containers are that are being marketed and sold to people. But anyway, I just say all that to say, like, I do think even even the fitness industry itself, and by the way, that's a big net, so there's a lot of difference in that too. But some some within the fitness industry are recognizing the larger health picture than just showing up to the gym for 30 minutes or an hour. You know what I mean? Like that there's huge other factors at play. You can go to the gym every day for two hours and still be so unhealthy Yeah, because of the way you eat and the way, you know, so, so yeah, I think, I think it'll be interesting to see how insurance companies incentivize that more because there are a lot of people I know that are also incentivized to have a certain like body weight, even like, Mm -hmm. like, like, like if they're, if they're, employer and I want to say it's their employer healthcare or whatever uh, insurance that um that if they fall into a particular category of being under obese or whatever that would does that make sense like mm-hmm. they 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 get some type of incentive to to, mm-hmm. to to be a particular to be whatever the body weight is for their particular size does that does that make sense like like yeah well I mean yeah. we had that so when I was at Des Moines University which is where I went to med school in Iowa 
you know, we had incentives for using the fitness center. Yeah. Like, so at the beginning, we all participated in like a health analysis. They said, hey, you guys are going to be doctors. You should know where you stand first. Yeah. So we all had blood work done and we had anthropometric measurements. They took our weight and our body fat percentage and our height and everything. And they said, okay, here's where you are right now. Um, if you take this many classes in the gym or do this much, then you'll receive these particular rewards moving upwards. Um, mm. And they also had uh, certain provisions for employees as well to um, you know either upgrade to standing desks for example or again you know scanning at the gym so many times a week or something and there were yeah. there were rewards and incentives for that yeah and so if you can if you can extrapolate that out to a larger population you might see more results because we do t- tend to be a challenge driven type people not all yeah. people but a lot of people like a challenge yeah. like to be like okay there's going to be an there's going to be a reward at the end of this yes so a challenge that leads to a reward um, especially if that reward is in any way financial, yeah, it's going to have uh, a minimized impact on your premium or on some, mm-hmm. something like that. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, so you think that's possible in the next ten years that you're going to see more access to gyms, potentially access to technology, wearable technology that mm-hmm. might track your heart, th- things, and other things like that are yes. going to become more and more popular as being so. something that you work with. We're already seeing your, that happening now. Yeah, though. and being something that you work with your insurer to to have provided yes interesting much like how a car insurance company might give you a device that plugs into your onboard diagnostics and says hey if you drive safer then we'll give you lower premiums yeah i think the same thing is true for health insurance if they say hey if you make healthier choices you'll get lower health premiums Mm. okay anything else on that on that front i got a couple other questions but anything else on that um i think that about covers okay uh next what does the path to universal healthcare look like? Do you think it's a foregone conclusion that we will get there? Or is it just a matter of how we get there? Or do you think there are other options that could solve our current problems? What's interesting is you didn't mention anything about universal healthcare when you when you consulted with Justin 2020. That is correct. I did not. You, everything you mentioned were other solutions to the current issues so Mm -hmm. um i don't anticipate in the next 10 years you see cigarettes being banned no i don't okay so but okay maybe this question can be tailored then just to simply talk about universal health care and that particular proposition instead of necessarily other current other issues does that make sense to solve other issues because we've kind of already answered that question yeah so maybe we can just talk about what do you think the path to universal uh healthcare looks like and do you think it's a foregone conclusion um or a matter of you know how, how we get there i guess or, or yeah. is, it, is it something that you don't think is possible in the united states with I, our I think it is certainly possible i don't think it is inevitable okay and i think a few things would have to happen and so you know the, the advice i gave just in 2020 was mostly predicated on how to make healthcare costs lower by making people healthier yes and I think that the first step to giving healthcare to everyone is being able to afford giving healthcare to everyone. Yep. If we can't pay for it for the people we have, we have no business expanding it to people who aren't included. Mm. And now that being said, we could say like, well, the money must be coming from and going somewhere. Like if there's anything worth spending money on, shouldn't it be the preservation of human life? And while that is somewhat true, that does not seem to be the prevailing notion in the country. People are willing to spend far more money on far greater things bigger things i mean not more important things yeah um but uh, for whatever reason this tends to fall by the wayside a little bit um i think that we're going to have to 
we're going to have to decide how much healthcare people deserve, quote unquote, if you want to use that word. Um, the bare minimum we've decided with the initiation of MTALA is that we at least want people to have emergency care. So in that regard, we, quote, have universal coverage for that and nothing else. So that's a I, good point. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. Like anyone has the right to be yep. seen by a doctor at any and time. And that in its own way is a form of universal health care that we provide as a country. It's yes. just very limited. It is limited. It is not cost effective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it creates a slew of other problems. Yes. But technically, no one, again, even if you're an undocumented immigrant, you have a legal right in the U.S. to present to an emergency department and receive evaluation and treatment. Mm-hmm. Now, you may get a bill. Yeah. It's not without consequence. But you at least should not be expected to die in the streets because of anything, whether it's your level of income, your documentation status, anything. All of that's protected. Mm -hmm. So then I would say the path towards universal coverage would be what services are we willing to include in what we feel is an essential human right for everyone? Do we believe that everyone is entitled to a primary care physician? Maybe not a specialist of certain types, but a primary care physician. Um, maybe they're entitled to a certain menu of medications. Maybe they won't have the top of the line newest drug on the streets, but they can have some basics that are known to work fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're limited to generic medications instead of brand name medications if an option is available. I think there's a way of starting from the bottom and gradually working your way up. And it, it's a little bit tricky because we have this mental obstacle of we don't want to give someone incomplete care, so to speak. Um, one element of the Affordable Care Act was it, it had um, minimum standards for insurance companies. Like if you're going to offer people something and call it insurance, you have to cover this, this, and this. Okay. So that way insurance companies can't say, oh, fine, we have to give care to people with pre-existing conditions. I'll give you, quote, health insurance and it will cover hangnail treatment and nothing else. You know, <laughs> there, look how compliant we are. Yeah. Like, so I think because of that specter, people are hesitant to the idea. But I do think that having some at least limited option that people receive just by virtue of being a citizen could be a first step. And the closest thing to that would be Medicaid, which says on on the premise that you cannot afford to purchase your own insurance, we will cover it for you. And one of the other things the Affordable Care Act did was increase the likelihood that people would qualify for Medicaid. Um, I do think that we would likely take that further and we would do it in one of two ways. We could either get more people on Medicare and Medicaid or would have yet another option with an even more limited menu of services that cover what we decide are the essential human rights, so to speak. Mm. Um, Which gets a little tricky because... That's good that you said that because my next question is, do you see healthcare as a right or a moral obligation to provide and why? So I'm just going to go ahead and ask that now. I was just about to segue into that. Yeah, because it's it's a perfect segue because... When we talk about universal health care, that is the question, right? Yes. It is people who argue for universal health care see health care as a right. And there's two ways that people in my profession would look at that. One is to say, I am a human being who has invested in my own particular skill set and training. It is extremely valuable and I will offer it to you for a price. You have no right to compel me to do something for you. Um, so because healthcare is by necessity administered by people, specifically highly trained professionals, there are some who take offense to the notion that people should just expect to receive it. It's flattering to us to think that we give you something so useful that you couldn't possibly do without it, but it may also not be true that literally everything that we do as providers of this particular service is something that you, by necessity, are entitled to have by virtue of being a human being or a citizen of the United States. Sure. 
Other people would say, what we do in medicine is not just a profession, it is a fairly unique calling. It's one that society has invested a considerable amount in allowing us to pursue through funding for our training, for the privilege of taking care of them while we're still learners as medical students and residents, um, and in exchange for even, even such things as, you know, we, in medical school, we work with, you know, human bodies in anatomy mm -hmm. lab. Like people, the, society has given us a great deal to make us who we are, and we owe them something in return. Um, I tend to be in the latter camp. I believe that what I do is different than someone who, you know, like Sal's cookie factory or whatever we were sure. using earlier. I think that the ability that I have to practice medicine is based on a skill set that I couldn't have acquired on my own. It's something that society has given me. And I believe that I would be willing to do work I would rather not do on the understanding that that service is offered to me as well mm. and that I have a debt that I need to pay back. Not just like a financial debt for med school, but like people have allowed me the opportunity to learn my craft by practicing on them. And I think that, you know, as part of the oaths that I took when I graduated and as part of a sense of common decency, I think that I should offer that service to as many people as I reasonably can. Mm -hmm. um, so calling something a right is a little bit challenging because... Especially in our cultural right, context. Right, because in order to give someone else the right to healthcare, I have to restrict someone else's right to decide who they give it to. I have to restrict my right to work a standard nine-to-five job. You know what I mean? Yeah, which back to smoking, for example, to give someone the right to smoke for a long time meant we also were taking away someone's right to have clean air if they were dying by secondhand smoke. Right, right. So like... So like yeah. Any right you might give someone can have a cost to other people's rights. Yes. So it's interesting to consider in this particular thought yes. of giving someone the right to health care can potentially limit the right of of a physician. Mm -hmm. I, I or, or all the, or, the, or the health professionals. In general. Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't want to act like doctors are the yeah. only ones who provide no, health. I understand. But, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we're, we're kind of an important part of it. Yeah. So I... I suppose I would be comfortable saying that people should probably have the right to receive a service that we can reasonably give them if it makes a significant difference in their life. Um, I do think that right has limits. I don't think that every human, by virtue of being a human being, is entitled to receive the top of the line, you know, artificial heart X thousand or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, or even something like, and I, and I don't want to pick on this particular thing, but like, some subset like dermatology, unless it's something that maybe is absolutely necessary. But and I don't know, maybe dermatology is a bad example. That's a bad I'm not, example. Okay, that's a bad example. Okay, it's a very bad example. All right, <laughs> take that back. I'm trying to think of like a subset. Well, obviously plastic like cosmetic surgery, surgeons cosmetic and... cosmetic surgery, which obviously at the same time can also have a huge effect on on someone because. Did we talk about this on air? Or was this like just a weird little conversation we had one time about how cosmetics have a significant impact on a person's health? Yeah, we talked about this. Uh, I don't know if we were recording. It was not. That it was one. not recording. That was a side conversation because yeah. you had brought in depression. I think or into that conversation was that right? Uh, I, I brought like, a lot of things in that yeah, conversation. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I wouldn't. One thing is insurance companies regularly deny people what are called quote cosmetic procedures, which I do think is a mistake. Yes. Um, why? Why? Maybe we can get off on that tangent just okay. real quick. So if we have, and there have been studies on this, if I have a high school teenager who is diagnosed with acne, the psychological impact it has is comparable to a classmate diagnosed with cancer. Like it is. That is wild. It, exactly. So, this is why teenagers just don't make sense. No, they don't. No. <laughs> but like things that impact cosmetic yes. appearance 
have a huge impact on your perceived self-worth and how other people treat you. It's shallow, but it is important. Which can lead to anxiety, depression, yeah. other other illnesses that have a real life-threatening yes. risk, right? Yes. So that particular treatment, you could connect to being, I don't want to say life-threatening, but the outcomes of that going untreated could have significant Long-reaching health impacts. Yes, yeah, I think okay. so. Okay. Um, so I, I don't want to say that all of that is. So it's hard to p- it's hard to pick that. This is where this is where I think it's so hard for me because when we're talking about whether or not it's a moral obligation or a right, it's like, yeah, I do think emergency care is a right. I think having a family physician would probably be you know having or having a you know your own particular primary care doctor um, would be a right. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as you kind of keep going down the list, we're obviously heart, you know, artificial heart 5,000 or whatever you said like yeah. that, that, that probably is a little over the top for calling it a, a right or a moral obligation to the best technology, right? Yes. Okay. But where do you think that line is? That's a, that's a hard line. Like where I, it, I, cause I'm trying to sit here and think of it in my head and I said dermatology. And then the moment I said it, I was like, no, there's a ton of reasons. That's a bad idea. <laughs> and then I thought plastic surgery. And then there's a ton of reason that's a bad idea. And plastic and, surgery is more than cosmetic yeah, plastic surgery. surgery is more than cosmetic surgery. I, 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 but uh, yeah. Yeah. I, and I don't want to say, pla- I'm more saying I'm thinking of plastic surgery. You're talking about not, like nine or two window kind of stuff. No, I'm not. So, well, okay. That's the plastic <laughs> surgery. But I'm even saying like the reasons I'm saying plastic surgery might not be the case is because if someone's in a car accident and they have a, a real need for particular reconstructive for reconstructive surgery, surgery. That, maybe yeah. that, okay. That, so so maybe there are two different terms. Sort of thing, yes. Yeah. So, but I'm thinking in that particular case, it's like that could be necessary. I don't know. Yeah. This is so so this is this is <laughs> this is clearly the particular problem as we think about yeah. where the line is for universal well, coverage, right? I will say. Generally speaking, when we talk about the rights that a person should have, the function of a right is to, at least in some way, take away the the ebb and flow of fate. Like if someone has, you know, a right to, well, if we talk about people all being born equal and having a right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, we will say no one can be penalized because of something just based on how they were born into the world. If they happen to be the wrong skin color, for example, Mm -hmm. or, you know, if they happen to be under the, this particular country versus this one that won't allow its citizens to leave or read or vote or anything like that. I think that rights in some ways are means of equalizing the opportunities, at least that everyone is able to start from. It doesn't mean everyone is always on equal footing, but they at least have the same starting point. Mm-hmm. And so in that regard, when it comes to the right to health care, I think that people should be afforded the ability to have whatever care would be reasonably expected of a citizen, independent of some poor circumstances or bad luck, like if they happen to be born with a genetic condition or if they happen to fall on hard times and can't afford their own private health insurance. Gosh. It does not mean that we have a right to perfect them in a way that would give them an undue advantage to anyone else who didn't have that particular opportunity. Okay. It doesn't mean that we necessarily have to remove all of the consequences of their personal life choices. It doesn't mean that you know sometimes bad things and acts of God happen and we can't impoverish the nation trying to treat each and every one of them. Mm. Yeah. So in terms of that basic setup, I, I do think that certainly emergency care, probably primary care as well, falls into that category. Mm-hmm. Um, and anything that can reasonably culminate in a life-threatening emergency, I think people should have a right to find a way of avoiding. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that's 
you know, it's it's hard to take any condition and not spin it into something eventually life threatening. You know what I mean? Well, it's hard to take any condition and not spin it into some eventually life threatening, but it's also hard to keep widening that pool and seeing the consequences of the cost. Like, yes. like, does that make sense? Like that's the that I think is the the really difficult thing. And then also to see once you hand it and put it in the hands of legislators and government. The cynical Justin comes back to the mm-hmm. forefront of like, how's that gonna work? Like, how yeah. how are we gonna make sure people get access to all of that? So, do you anticipate universal? You said universal healthcare is something you think is possible, but not a foregone conclusion, or likely but not a foregone conclusion. I'm curious. What um, I honestly think it's likely, especially when you look at the young demographic. The young demographic loves the idea. I don't know that they fully understand it. Yeah. Or and I don't know that they've. They haven't actually had to have healthcare. A lot of them, you know, one of the things the ACA did was allow you to be on your parents' healthcare. So like, mm-hmm. they haven't necessarily had to pay for healthcare the way maybe their parents' generation has. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I, I'm the first to say like, uh, sometimes the younger demographic of which I call myself millennial because I am in the millennial demographic, it can be naive to the to to, to the realities. But at the same time, those younger markers seem to really support something like universal. Healthcare, yeah. and eventually those are going to be the primary voting block of of America. Yeah, if they still have that opinion when they reach if that they still point. have that opinion when they reach that point. Which exactly. you know, anyone who has been underinsured and gotten a hospital bill becomes very enthusiastic about universal single payer coverage. Of course. Yeah. So I mean, I also think that so it the will, more underinsured people we have, the more likely we have, the more underinsured, frustrated yeah. people we have. Yeah. Although I don't know if that's true because there's a lot of people that I feel like I know that are underinsured that. Are very against universal health care. Yeah. Uh, until it becomes an intimate thing for you, maybe. Yeah. Like to where you actually have. Until some, you realize how much this stuff costs if you're paying it on your own. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, the fact of the matter is when people have insurance, they may be, quote, underinsured, but when people have decent enough insurance, they tend to be relatively well protected as insurance is meant to do. And we know that that's achievable for, you know, the average person with the median income. It's not difficult to say we may not be able to talk about whether everyone in the world deserves X or Y or Z in terms of healthcare coverage, but if everyone at least deserves enough money to purchase their own health insurance, I think that, you know, even if that ends up being funded by taxes, which is probably the most likely way it's going to happen, I think that's a very low hanging and achievable goal that people could pursue. And that's essentially what Medicare and Medicaid aim to do, essentially. Yeah. They say they aim to connect people with a product typically provided by a private entity mm-hmm. and merely offer the funding for that product. Yeah. And there are considerable efforts that have been going on for the last several years to expand access to those particular services. And that's just a matter of how much money do we want to spend? Yeah. I'm pretty sure that is Bernie Sanders policy. Like I don't, I'm not Medicare super, for all. well Medi- to expand Medi- yeah. Medicare in essence, he's like, Although we have a system also, that's in some ways already working. Let's, right. how, how do we expand the system to get more people access to it? Although the controversy is, is that the only option that you have or can you still purchase private insurance Exactly. and people losing that? And, and that's a legitimate concern because Medicare and Medicaid are by no stretch of the imagination model insurance plans to or, have. Yeah, comprehensive. In, yeah, in, in it's not sense. good. Yeah. And, and hospitals routinely lose money treating patients with Medicare and Medicaid plans. Yes. Like they, on average, um, one particular study that came out about maybe seven years ago now said that we recuperate about 90% of the costs when taking care of patients like that. Oof. So it's not the most sustainable system in the world. It would need to make changes and improvements. Um, 
For the sake of the hospital. Yes. Yeah. I mean, most you'd of probably the money, have hospitals going under if you had far more patients coming and, that way because 10% cost. And look at Hahnemann University Medical Center. Say that again? And look at Hahnemann. So yeah. there was a hospital in Philadelphia that back in September or so officially closed its doors saying we have been hemorrhaging money. Um, they typically take care of inner city underinsured or uninsured populations. And, and it, they went under. They closed their doors. They just made an announcement and saying, you know, all of the doctors wow. in this hospital start looking for new jobs. We're not taking new admissions. When a patient's discharged, we close the room and no one goes in there again until the hospital's empty. Wow. And, and this was a shock to so many people, especially fresh graduates from med school who had just signed a contract there as their first job for the next three years, bought houses, and now they're unemployed. Mm. So... It's a real hazard. It's not just that the money just will keep coming, that the CEO will sell one of his minivans. Like, you know, it's a real possibility that these places completely stop functioning. And so right now, private insurance being able to offer maybe a little bit better reimbursement and compensation than Medicare and Medicaid, that may be keeping the system afloat in some ways. So I don't think that forcing everyone to go on a Medicare Medicaid plan will work. But I do think that allowing people to get on it in the first place is better than letting them die in the streets, so to speak. Being on Medicare and Medicaid, if, if to, the only, to, me, to me, if you don't have health insurance, yes, being having access to that, being on that, is still better than nothing. Is better because it's actually probably going to save the hospital to some extent some money from the potential ER visit that they're going to have exactly, to overlook yes. anyway. It could save money from yeah. that. So I don't, and, think, and you don't get reimbursed for that necessarily. You nope. could recoup some costs for that, but it's very unlikely. Right? And we you, usually, usually most hospitals would do it by transmitting that down to either they can write off as charity yep. or they have to increase everyone else's cost to make up for it. Those are the But options. you can only write off so much as charity. Exactly. Because that, you know, yeah, yeah exactly. as an organization, you can only write off yeah. so much as charity and then it has to go increase the other costs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So no, making everyone go Medicare and Medicaid is not sustainable. But having people at with least no initially. insurance. At least initially. If you can renegotiate those particular situations to bring that, up to 100% mm-hmm. or close to 100% for the hospitals that they recoup that money, mm-hmm. then you're in a different situation. Yes. Because right? then then you're in more of a... Yeah. And, and it may be that Medicare and Medicaid only get away with paying so little because they know other insurance companies will pick up the tab. Yeah. And if we do away with it, that may change. But uh, it would be a messy transition. Yes. And I, I've already seen what happens to hospitals that take care primarily of those patients in the system as it is now. A lot of things would have to be very carefully planned in advance, and I just don't trust that they're going to pull it off. Mm. So a slower transition, perhaps, but I think the first step is at least take care of the uninsured entirely by giving them something. And then we can talk about what to do with the existing people once we've made sure that no one's left behind. Mm. Good deal. Okay, so any closing thoughts as we close out this two-episode track on healthcare? We've talked a lot about a lot of things. Is there anything we haven't covered that you think, oh, we got to touch for a second here on this or that or the other thing? Or is there anything like in conclusion that you would want people to know or be aware of as they're even thinking about healthcare and policy and um, and what to advocate for, what to think about is important. Obviously, we're all leaving here advocating for cigarettes being no more. That, that, that. <laughs> uh, and even that, strangely enough, is hard to get everyone behind. But oh, of course, 100%. I, yeah, I'll say, so none of this can be summarized in one second. But no, it can't. I'll say the big points I want to make are this. Um, the best way to avoid healthcare costs is to avoid disease, which is a lot easier than it sounds. Most of the things that people are dying of can be mitigated to some degree through healthy lifestyle choices, 
best time to do it is when you don't have any of them to begin with. The other thing is, no matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, people are going to get sick, they're going to get worse, and they will eventually die. We have to accept that reality and know when it's time. Um, not everything that we do in healthcare is necessarily cost-effective, partly because we spend money treating things that are not easily treated. And I think for some people, it's reasonable for them to recognize there are some things that I would not want. Discuss them early with people who are nearest to you to make those decisions. We touched a little bit on that last yeah. week. Um, 80% of the care of the money spent on most chronic conditions is in the last year of life, often in an ICU setting. And that is not a pleasant way to go, nor is it the cheapest. Mm. So while it's not pleasant, recognize how much a year of your life is worth and how much you'd be willing to spend to preserve it. And lastly, no one has any answers for this. I don't think that any politician has it perfectly right. But even if you don't understand how healthcare works, it's at least easy to recognize when someone has a perverse incentive to do the wrong thing. Hold your politicians accountable. If they do something that isn't in your best interest, make sure that you're aware of it. Um, oftentimes, a lot of these things that people get into arms about, whether it's uh, something like universal health care, it's strictly based on partisan politics. Most people have no idea what actually goes into these decisions. Recognize when you're making a decision with a tribal animalistic part of your mind. Yeah. Set it aside and recognize that we are all in dire peril if we don't figure this out. We're going to have to work together and it's not going to be easy. Mm. Very good. Very good. Come together right now. <laughs> my son's really into the Beatles now, so I've got that in my mind, and that's totally what we need. We definitely have to come together on this. It's so, I think it's so important that that partisan part, that's probably the biggest piece, because if we can't, if we can't step away from our tribe and consider a different perspective, there's just so many complicated things we've gone in and out of during this, mm -hmm. during this, these conversations that it's like, it's it's going to take people who can get in a room together, discuss things and not be limited by the talking points that their tribe gives them. Yeah. And, right. and I'm really glad that we've gone on such weird rambling rabbit trails these past yeah. two weeks yeah. because it just draws to light the fact that healthcare is about the preservation and optimization of life, which means by necessity, it will impact every element of life and vice versa. Yeah. There is no element of your day to day life that isn't in some way connected to healthcare. And it's not like it's this distinct silo where if you have an expert in, quote, healthcare, end quote, they'll be able to solve the problems because it touches everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it is an industry. And when we say industry, there's so many moving parts and players and even how we open this talking about how jobs might be affected by it. Like there's so many things that this will impact. And, and ultimately... Those are all things that we have to consider in this. So interesting, interesting conversation, Nate. Thank you for being <laughs> on with me. Thank you for, for taking all this time because this is a lot of time you took over these last two episodes to, to inform people, help people understand um, the reality of the healthcare system and, and maybe even how we can, you know, reform it, make it better, the problems that exist. Really thankful for your time. My pleasure. All right, there you have it. I think something like five hours of talk on healthcare, super exciting. And I uh, just wanna encourage you, send your questions in. It's at Pastor Justin Douglas on Instagram, or you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com and you can send those in uh, through the, uh, 
through the episode. You can just comment on the episode. Um, you can Facebook message me, all different ways that you can connect, but ultimately just want to encourage you to connect, send your questions in, and we will get a time scheduled for Nate and I to go over those questions and have some more conversation on healthcare. Thanks to Nathan McConkie for joining me and for talking healthcare. Also, just so you know, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash beyond boundaries podcast. If you want to and are able to support the show financially, that would be amazing. You can also support the show by subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing, getting the word out really does make a lot of difference. And I'm always thankful when I see others uh, sharing one of the podcasts, maybe taking a screenshot of it and putting it in their stories uh, on Instagram or all the other ways that you guys share it's really cool to see and i really 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 appreciate it may you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries giving others love exploring new ideas and championing belonging